This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Foster Your Dead by Philip K. Dick. It's read by Mike Vendetti. It runs 45 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. Foster, You're Dead, by Philip K. Dick. I'm Mike Vendetti. School was agony as always, only today it was worse. Mike Foster finished weaving his two watertight baskets and sat rigid, while all around him the other children worked. Outside the concrete and steel building, the late afternoon sun shone cool. The hills sparkled green and brown in the crisp autumn air. In the overhead sky, a few gnats circled lazily above the town. The vast, ominous shape of Mrs. Cummings, a teacher, silently approached his desk. Foster, are you finished? Yes, ma'am, he answered eagerly. He pushed the baskets up. Can I leave now? Mrs. Cummings examined the baskets critically. What about your trap-making? she demanded. He fumbled in his desk and brought out his intricate small animal trap. All finished, Miss Cummings. And my knife, it's done too. He showed her the razor-edged blade of his knife, glittering metal he had shaped from a discarded gasoline drum. She picked up the knife and ran her expert finger doubtfully along the blade. Not strong enough, she stated. You've oversharpened it. It'll lose its edge the first time you use it. Go down to the main weapons lab and examine the knives they've got down there. Then hone it back some and get a thicker blade. Mrs. Cummings... Mike Foster pleaded. Could I fix it tomorrow? Could I not fix it right now, please? Everybody in the classroom was watching with interest. Mike Foster flushed. He hated to be singled out and made conspicuous, but he had to get away. Couldn't stay in school one minute more. Inexorable, Mrs. Cummings rumbled. Tomorrow is digging day. You won't have time to work on your knife. I will, he assured her quickly. After the digging... No, you're not too good at digging. The old woman was measuring the boy's spindly arms and legs. I think you better get your knife finished today and spend all day tomorrow down at the field. What's the use of digging? Mike Foster demanded in despair. Everybody has to know how to dig, Mrs. Cummings answered patiently. Children were snickering on all sides. She shushed them with a hostile glare. You all know the importance of digging. When the war begins, the whole surface will be littered with debris and rubble. If we hope to survive, we'll have to dig down, won't we? Have any of you ever watched a gopher digging around the roots of plants? The gopher knows he'll find something valuable down there under the surface of the ground. We're all going to be little brown gophers. We'll all have to learn to dig down in rubble and find good things, because that's where they'll be. Mike Foster sat miserably plucking his knife as Mrs. Cummings moved away from his desk and up the aisle. A few children grinned contemptuously at him, but nothing penetrated his haze of wretchedness. Digging wouldn't do him any good. When the bomb came, he'd be killed instantly. All the vaccination shots up and down his arms, on his thighs and buttocks would be of no use. He had wasted his allowance money. Mike Foster wouldn't be alive to catch any of the bacterial plagues. Not unless... He sprang up and followed Mrs. Cummings to her desk. In an agony of desperation, he blurted, Please, I have to leave. I have to do something. 
Mrs. Cummings's tired lips twisted angrily, but the boy's fearful eyes stopped her. What's wrong? she demanded. Don't you feel well? The boy stood frozen, unable to answer her. Pleased by the tableau, the class murmured and giggled until Mrs. Cummings rapped angrily on her desk with a writer. Be quiet, she snapped. Her voice softened a shade. Michael, if you're not functioning properly, go downstairs to the psych clinic. There's no point trying to work when your reactions are conflicted. Miss Groves will be glad to optimum you. No, Foster said. Then what is it? The class stirred, voices answered for Foster. His tongue was stuck with misery and humiliation. His father's an anti-P, the voices explained. They don't have a shelter, and he isn't registered in the civic defense. His father hasn't even contributed to the Nats. They haven't done anything. Mrs. Cummings gazed up in amazement at the mute boy. You don't have a shelter? He shook his head. A strange feeling filled the woman. But she had started to say, But you'll die up here. She changed it to, But where'll you go? Nowhere, the mild voices answered for him. Everybody else will be down in their shelters and he'll be up here. He even doesn't have a permit to the school shelter. Mrs. Cummings was shocked. In her dull scholastic way, she had assumed every child in the school had a permit to the elaborate subsurface chambers under the building. But of course not. Only children whose parents were part of C.D. who contributed to arming the community. And if Foster's father was an anti-P... He's afraid to sit here, the voices chimed calmly. He's afraid it'll come while he's sitting here, and everybody else will be safe down in the shelter. He wandered slowly along, hands deep in his pockets, kicking at dark stones on the sidewalk. Sun was setting. Snub-nosed commute rockets were unloading tired people, glad to be home from the factory strip a hundred miles to the west. On a distant hill, something flashed. A radar tower revolving silently in the evening gloom. The circling gnats had increased in number. The twilight hours were the most dangerous. Visual observers couldn't spot high-speed missiles coming in close to the ground assuming the missiles came. A mechanical news machine shouted at him excitedly as he passed. War, death, amazing new weapons developed at home and abroad. He hunched his shoulders and continued on past the little concrete shells that served as houses, each exactly alike, sturdy, reinforced pillboxes. Ahead of him, bright neon signs glowed in the settling gloom, the business district, alive with traffic and milling people. Half a block from the bright cluster of neons, he halted. To his right was a public shelter, a dark tunnel-like entrance with a mechanical turnstile glowing dully. Fifty cents admission. He was here on a street, and he had fifty cents. He'd be all right. He had pushed down into public shelters many times during the practice raids, but at other times hideous nightmare times that never left his mind. He hadn't had the fifty cents. He'd stood mute and terrified while people pushed excitedly past him, and the shrill shrieks of the sirens thundered everywhere. He continued slowly until he came to the brightest blotch of light, the great gleaming showrooms of General Electronics, two blocks long, illuminated on all sides, a vast square of pure color and radiation. He halted and examined for the millionth time the fascinating shapes, the display that always drew him to a hypnotized stop whenever he passed. In the center of the vast room was a single object, 
an elaborate, pulsing blob of machinery and support struts, beams and walls and sealed locks. All spotlights were turned on it. Huge signs announced its hundred and one advantages, as if there could be any doubt. The new 1972 bomb-proof radiation-sealed subsurface shelter is here. Check these star-studded features. Automatic descent lift jam-proof, self-powered easy locking. Triple-layer hull guaranteed to withstand 5G pressure without buckling. A powered heating and refrigeration system self-servicing air purification network. Three decontamination stages for food and water. Four hygienic stages for pre-burn exposure. Complete antibiotic processing. Easy payment plan. He glanced at the shelter for a long time. It was mostly a big tank with a neck at one end. That was the descent tube and an emergency escape hatch at the other. It was completely self-contained. A miniature world that supplied its own light, heat, air, water, medicines, and almost inexhaustible food. When fully stocked, there were visual and audio tapes, entertainment, beds, chairs, video screen, everything that made up the above-surface home. It was actually a home below the ground. Nothing was missing that might be needed or enjoyed. A family would be safe, even comfortable, during the most severe H-bomb and bacterial spray attack. Cost $20,000. While he was gazing silently at the massive display, one of the salesmen stepped out onto the dark sidewalk on his way to the cafeteria. Hi, Sonny, said automatically as he passed Mike Foster. Not bad, is it? Can I go inside? Foster asked quickly. Can I go down in it? Salesman stopped as he recognized the boy. Yeah, a kid, he said slowly. That damn kid who's always pestering us. I'd like to go down in it just for a couple of minutes. I won't bust anything, I promise. I won't even touch anything. Salesman was young and blonde, a good-looking man in his early twenties. He hesitated, his reactions divided. Kid was a pest, but he had a family, and that meant a reasonable prospect. Business was bad, it was late September, and the seasonal slump was still on. There was no profit in telling the boy to go peddle his news tapes. But on the other hand, it was bad business encouraging small fry to crawl around the merchandise. They wasted time, they broke things, they pilfered small stuff when nobody was looking. No dice, the salesman said. Look, send your old man down here. Has he seen what we've got? Yes, Mike Foster said tightly. What's holding him back? The salesman waved expansively up at the great gleaming display. We'll give him a good trade-in on his old one, allowing for depreciation and obsolescence. What model has he got? We don't have any, Mike Foster said. The salesman blinked. Come again? My father says it's a waste of money. He says they're trying to scare people into buying things they don't need. He says, your father's an anti-P? Yes, Mike Foster answered unhappily. Salesman let out his breath. Okay, kid, sorry we can't do business. Not your fault, he lingered. What the hell's wrong with him? Does he put in on the nets? No. Salesman swore under his breath. Coaster sliding along safe because the rest of the community was putting up 30% of its income to keep a constant defense system going. There were always a few of them in every town. How'd your mother feel? Salesman demanded. She go along with him? She says, Mike Foster broke off. Couldn't I go down it for just a little while? I won't bust anything, just once. How'd we ever sell it if we let kids run through it? We're not marking it down as a demonstration model. 
We've got roped into that too often. Salesman's curiosity was aroused. How's a guy get to be an anti-P? He always feel this way, or did he get stung with something? He says they sold people as many cars and washing machines and television sets as they could use. He says gnats and bomb shelters aren't good for anything, so people never get all they can use. He says factories can keep turning out guns and gas masks forever, and as long as people are afraid, they'll keep paying for them because they think if they don't, they might get killed, and maybe a man gets tired of paying for a car every year and stops, but he's never going to stop buying shelters to protect his children. You believe that? Salesman asked. I wish we had a shelter, Mike Foster answered. If we had a shelter like that, I'd go down and sleep in it every night. It'd be there when we needed it. Maybe there won't be a war, Salesman said. He sensed the boy's misery and fear, and he grinned good-naturedly down at him. Don't worry all the time. You probably watch too many bit tapes. Get out and play for a change. Nobody's safe on the surface, Mike Foster said. We have to go down below, and there's no place I can go. Send your old man around, salesman muttered uneasily. Maybe we can talk him into it. We've got a lot of time payment plans. Tell him to ask for Bill O'Neill, okay? Mike Foster wandered away down the black evening street. He knew he was supposed to be home, but his feet dragged and his body was heavy and dull. His fatigue made him remember what his athletic coach had said the day before during exercises. They were practicing breath suspension, holding a lung full of air and running. He hadn't done well. The others were still red-faced and racing when he halted, expelling his air, and stood gasping frantically for breath. Foster, coach said angrily, you're dead. You know that? If this had been a gas attack, he shook his head wearily. Go over there and practice by yourself. You've got to do better if you expect to survive. But he didn't expect to survive. When he stepped up on the porch of his home, he found the living room lights already on. He could hear his father's voice, the more faintly his mother's, from the kitchen. He closed the door after him and began unpeeling his coat. Is that you? his father demanded. Bob Foster sat sprawled out on his chair, his lap full of tapes and report sheets from his retail furniture store. Where you been? Dinner's been ready half an hour. He had taken off his coat and rolled up his sleeves. His arms were pale and thin, but muscular. He was tired. His eyes were large and dark, his hair thinning. Restlessly, he moved the tapes around from one stack to another. I'm sorry, Mike Foster said. His father examined his pocket watch. He was surely the only man who still carried a watch. Go wash your hands. What have you been doing? He scrutinized his son. You look odd. Do you feel all right? I was downtown, Mike Foster said. What were you doing? Looking at the shelters. Wordless, his father grabbed up a handful of reports and stuffed them into a folder. Thin lips set. Hard lines wrinkled his forehead. He snorted furiously as tapes spilled everywhere. He bent stiffly to pick them up. Mike Foster made no move to help him. He crossed to the closet and gave his coat to the hanger. When he turned away, his mother was directing the table of food into the dining room. They ate without speaking, intent on their food and not looking at each other. Finally, his father said, What'd you see? Same old dogs, I suppose. There's the new 72 models, Mike Foster answered. They're the same as the 71 models. His father threw down his fork savagely, table caught, and absorbed it. few new gadgets, some more chrome, that's all. Suddenly he was facing his son defiantly. Right? 
Mike Foster toyed wretchedly with his creamed chicken. New ones have a jam-proof descent lift. You can't get stuck halfway down. All you have to do is get in it, and it does the rest. There'll be one next year that'll pick you up and carry you down. This one'll be obsolete as soon as people buy it. That's what they want. They want you to keep buying. They keep putting out new ones as fast as they can. This isn't 1972. It's still 1971. What's that thing doing out already? Can't they wait? Mike Foster didn't answer. He had heard it all before many times. There was never anything new, only chrome and gadgets. Yet the old ones became obsolete anyhow. His father's argument was loud, impassioned, almost frenzied. But it made no sense. Let's get an old one, then, he blurted out. I don't care. Anyone will do. Even a second-hand one. No, you want the new one, shiny and glittery to impress the neighbors, lots of dials and knobs and machinery. How much do they want for it? Twenty thousand dollars. His father let his breath out, just like that. They have easy time payment plans. Sure, you pay for it the rest of your life, interest, carrying charges. And how long is it guaranteed for? Three months. What happens when it breaks down? It'll stop purifying and decontaminating. It'll fall apart as soon as the three months are over. Mike Foster shook his head. No, it's big and sturdy. His father flushed. He was a small man, slender and light, brittle-boned. He thought suddenly of his lifetime of lost battles, struggling up the hard way, carefully collecting and holding on to something, a job, money, his retail store, bookkeeper to manager, finally owner. They're scaring us to keep the wheels going, he yelled desperately at his wife and son. They don't want another depression. Bob, his wife said slowly and quietly, you have to stop this. I can't stand any more. Bob Foster blinked. What are you talking about? He muttered. Tired. These goddamn taxes. It isn't possible for a little store to keep open. Not with the big chains. There ought to be a law. His voice trailed off. I guess I'm through eating. He pushed away from the table and got to his feet. You want to lie down on the couch and take a nap? His wife's thin face blazed. You have to get one. I can't stand the way they talk about us. All the neighbors and the merchants, everybody who knows. I can't go anywhere or do anything without hearing about it. Ever since that day they put up the flag anti-P. The last in the whole town. Those things circling around up there and everybody paying for them but us. No, Bob Foster said. I can't get one. Why not? Because, he answered simply, I can't afford it. There was silence. You've put everything in that store, Ruth said finally. It's failing anyhow. You're just like a pack rat hoarding everything down at that ratty little hole in the wall. Nobody wants wood furniture anymore. You're a relic, a curiosity. She slammed at the table, and it leaped wildly to gather the empty dishes, like a startled animal. It dashed furiously from the room and back into the kitchen, the dishes churning in its wash tank as it raced. Bob Foster sighed wearily. Let's not fight. I'll be in the living room. Let me take a nap for an hour or so. Maybe we can talk about it later. Always later, Ruth said bitterly. Her husband disappeared into the living room, a small hunched-over figure, hair scraggly and gray, shoulder blades like broken wings. Mike got to his feet. I'll go study my homework, he said. He followed after his father a strange look on his face.
The living room was quiet, the vidset was off, and the lamp was down low. Ruth was in the kitchen, setting the controls on the stove for the next month's meals. Bob Foster lay stretched out on the couch, his shoes off, his head on a pillow. His face was gray with fatigue. Mike hesitated for a moment and then said, Can I ask you something? His father grunted and stirred, opened his eyes. What? Mike sat down, facing him. Tell me again how you gave advice to the president. His father pulled himself up. I didn't give any advice to the president. I just talked to him. Tell me about it. Told you a million times, every once in a while since you were a baby. You were with me. His voice softened as he remembered. You were just a toddler. We had to carry you. What did he look like? Well, his father began slipping into a routine he had worked out and petrified over the years. He looked about like he does on the vid screen, smaller though. Why was he here? Mike demanded avidly, although he knew every detail. The president was his hero, the man he most admired in all the world. Why'd he come all the way out to here to our town? He was on a tour. Bitterness crept into his father's voice. He happened to be passing through. What kind of a tour? Visiting towns all over the country. The harshness increased. Seeing how we were getting along, seeing if we had bought enough gnats and bomb shelters and plague shots and gas masks and radar networks to repel attack. General Electronics Corporation was just beginning to put up its big showrooms and displays, everything bright and glittering and expensive. The first defense equipment available for home purchase, his lips twisted, all on easy payment plans, ads, posters, searchlights, free gardenias and dishes for the ladies. Mike Foster's breath panted in his throat. That was the day we got our preparedness flag, he said hungrily. That was the day he came to give us our flag. And they ran it up on a flagpole in the middle of town, and everybody was there yelling and cheering. You remember that? I think so. I remember people and sounds, and it was hot. It was June, wasn't it? June 10th, 1965. Quite an occasion. Not many towns had the big green flag then. People were still buying cars and TV sets. They hadn't discovered those days were over. TV sets and cars are good for something. You can only manufacture and sell so many of them. He gave you the flag, didn't he? Well, he gave it to all us merchants. Chamber of Commerce had it arranged. Competition between towns, see who can buy the most the soonest. Improve our town and at the same time stimulate business. Of course, the way they put it, the idea was if we had to buy our gas masks and bomb shelters, we'd take better care of them. As if we ever damaged telephones and sidewalks, our highways because the whole state provided them, our armies. Haven't there always been armies? Hasn't the government always organized its people for defense? I guess defense costs too much. I guess they save a lot of money, cut down the national debt by this. Tell me what he said, Mike Foster whispered. His father fumbled for his pipe and lit it with trembling hands. He said, Here's your flag, boys. You've done a good job. Bob Foster choked his acrid pipe fumes guzzled up. He was red-faced, sunburned, not embarrassed, perspiring and grinning. He knew how to handle himself. He knew a lot of first names, told a funny joke. The boy's eyes were wide with awe. 
He came all the way out here, and you talked to him. Yeah, his father said I talked to him. They were all yelling and cheering. The flag was going up, the big green preparedness flag. You said? I said to him, Is that all you brought us, a strip of green cloth? Bob Foster dragged tensely on his pipe. That was when I became an anti-pee. Only I didn't know it at the time. All I knew was we were on our own, except for a strip of green cloth. We should have been a country, a whole nation, 170 million people working together to defend ourselves. And instead, we're a lot of separate little towns. Little walled forts sliding and slipping back to the Middle Ages, raising our separate armies. Will the president ever come back? Mike asked. I doubt it. He was just passing through. If he comes back, Mike whispered, tense and not daring to hope, can we go see him? Can we look at him? Bob Foster pulled himself up to a sitting position. His bony arms were bare and white. His lean face was drab with weariness and resignation. How much was that damn thing you saw? He demanded hoarsely, that bomb shelter. Mike's heart stopped beating. Twenty thousand dollars. This is Thursday. I'll go down with you and your mother next Saturday. Bob Foster knocked out his smoldering half-lit pipe. I'll get it on the easy payment plan. The fall buying season is coming up soon. I usually do good. People buy wood furniture for Christmas gifts. He got up abruptly from the couch. Is it a deal? Mike couldn't answer. He could only nod. Fine, Father said with desperate cheerfulness. Now, you won't have to go down and look at it in the window. Shelter was installed, added an additional $200 by a fast-working team of laborers in brown coats with the words Grenrell Electronics stitched across their backs. Backyard was quickly restored, dirt and shrubs spaded in space, surface smoothed over and the bill respectively slipped under the front door. The lumbering delivery truck, now empty, clattered off down the street and the neighborhood was again silent. Mike Foster stood with his mother and a small group of admiring neighbors on the back porch of the house. Well, Mrs. Carlyle said finally, now you got a shelter. The best there is. That's right, Ruth Foster agreed. She was conscious of the people around her. It had been some time since so many had shown up at once. Grim satisfaction filled her gaunt frame, almost resentment. Certainly makes a difference, she said harshly. Yes, Mr. Douglas from down the street agreed. Now you have some place to go. He picked up the thick book of instructions the laborers had left. Says here you can stock it for a whole year. Live down there twelve months without coming up once. He shook his head admiringly. Mine's an old 69 model. Good for only six months, I guess maybe. Still good enough for us, his wife cut in. But there was a longing wistfulness in her voice. Can we go down and peek at it, Ruth? It's already, isn't it? Mike made a strangled noise and moved jerkily forward. His mother smiled understandingly. He has to go down there first. He gets first look at it. It's really for him, you know. Their arms folded against the chill September wind. The group of men and women stood waiting and watching as the boy approached the neck of the shelter and halted a few steps in front of it. He entered the shelter carefully, almost afraid to touch anything. The neck was big for him. It was built to admit a full-grown man. 
As soon as his weight was on the descent lift, it dropped beneath him. With a breathless whoosh, it plummeted down the pitch-black tube to the body of the shelter. The lift slammed hard against its shock absorbers, and the boy stumbled from it. The lift shot back to the surface simultaneously, sealing off the subsurface shelter, an impassable steel and plastic cork in the narrow neck. Lights had come on around him automatically. The shelter was bare and empty. No supplies had yet been carried down. Smelled of varnish and motor grease. Below him, the generators were throbbing dully. His presence activated the purifying and decontamination systems. On the blank concrete walls, meters and dials moved into sudden activity. He sat down on the floor, knees drawn up, face solemn, eyes wide. There was no sound but the generators. The world above was completely cut off. He was in a little self-contained cosmos. Everything needed was here, or would be here soon. Food, water, air, things to do. Nothing else was wanted. He could reach out and touch whatever he needed. He could stay here forever, through all time, without stirring, complete and entire, not lacking, not fearing, with only the sound of the generators purring below him, and the sheer aesthetic walls around and above him on all sides. Faintly warm, completely friendly, like a living container. Suddenly he shouted, a loud jubilant shout that echoed and bounced from wall to wall. He was deafened by the reverberation. He shut his eyes tight and clenched his fists. Joy filled him. He shouted again and let the roar of sound lap over him, his own voice reinforced by the near walls, close and hard and incredibly powerful. The kids at school knew even before he showed up the next morning. They greeted him as he approached, all of them grinning and nudging each other. Is it true your folks got a new General Electronics Model S-72FT? Earl Peters demanded. That's right, Mike answered. His heart swelled with a peaceful confidence he had never known. Drop around, he said as casually as he could. I'll show it to you. He passed on, conscious of their envious faces. Well, Mike, Mrs. Cummings said, as he was leaving the classroom at the end of the day, how does it feel? He halted by her desk and full of quiet pride. Feels good, he admitted. Is your father contributing to the Nats? Yes. And you've got a permit for our school shelter? He happily showed her the small blue seal clamped around his wrist. You mailed a check to the city for everything. He said, as long as I've got this far, I might as well go the rest of the way. Now you have everything everybody else has. The elderly woman smiled across at him. I'm glad of that. You're now a pro-P, except there's no such term. You're just like everyone else. The next day, the news machine shrilled out the news, the first revelation of the new Soviet boar pellets. Bob Foster stood in the middle of the living room, the news tape in his hands, his thin face flushed with fury and despair. God damn it! It's plot! His voice rose in baffled frenzy. We just bought the thing, and now look, look! He shoved the tape at his wife. You see, I told you. I've seen it, Ruth said wildly. I suppose you think the whole world was just waiting with you in mind. They're always improving weapons, Bob. Last week it was those grain impregnation flakes. This week's it's boar pellets. You don't expect them to stop the wheels of progress because you finally broke down and bought a shelter, do you? The man and woman faced each other. What the hell are we going to do? Bob Foster asked quietly. Ruth paced back into the kitchen. I heard they're going to turn out adapters. Adapters? What do you mean? 
so people won't have to buy new shelters. There was a commercial on the bid screen. They're going to put some kind of metal grill on the market as soon as the government approves it. They spread it over the ground, and it intercepts the boar pellets. It screens them, makes them explode on the surface so they can't burrow down to the shelter. How much? They didn't say. Mike Foster sat crouched on the sofa, listening. He had heard the news at school. They were taking their test on berry identification, examining in-case samples of wild berries to distinguish the harmless ones from the toxic, when the bill had denounced a general assembly. Principal read them the news about the boar pellets, and then gave a routine lecture on emergency treatment of a new variant of typhus, recently developed. His parents were still arguing. We'll have to get one, Ruth Foster said calmly. Otherwise, it won't make any difference whether we've got a shelter or not. The boar pellets are specifically designed to penetrate the surface and seek out warmth. Soon as the Russians have them in production... I'll get one, Bob Foster said. I'll get the anti-pellet grill and whatever else they have. I'll buy everything they put on the market. I'll never stop buying. It's not as bad as that. You know, this game has one real advantage over selling people cars and TV sets. With something like this, we have to buy. It isn't a luxury. Something big and flashy to impress the neighbors. Something we could do without. If we don't buy this, we die. They always said the way to sell something was create anxiety in people. Create a sense of insecurity. Tell them they smell bad or look funny. But this makes a joke out of deodorant and hair oil. You can't escape this. If you don't buy, they'll kill you. The perfect sales pitch. Buy or die. New slogan. Have a shiny new General Electronics H-bomb shelter for your backyard or be slaughtered. Stop talking like that, Ruth snapped. Bob Foster threw himself down at the kitchen table. All right, I give up. I'll go along with it. You'll get one? I think they'll be on the market by Christmas. Ah, uh, yes, Foster said. They'll be out by Christmas. There was a strange look on his face. I'll buy one of the damn things for Christmas. So will everybody else. The GEC grill screen adapters were a sensation. Mike Foster walked slowly along the crowd-packed December street through the late afternoon twilight. Adapters glittered in every store window, all shapes and sizes, for every kind of shelter, all prices, for every pocketbook. The crowds of people were gay and excited, typical Christmas crowds, shoving good-naturedly, loaded down with packages and heavy overcoats. The air was white with gusts of sweeping snow. Cars nosed cautiously along the jam streets. Lights and neon displays, immense glowing store windows gleamed on all sides. His own house was dark and silent. His parents weren't home yet. Both of them were down at the store working. Business had been bad, and his mother was taking the place of one of the clerks. Mike held his hand up to the code key, and the front door let him in. The automatic furnace had kept the house warm and pleasant. He removed his coat and put away his school books. Didn't stay in the house long. His heart pounding with excitement, he felt his way out the back door and started onto the back porch. Forced himself to stop, turn around, and re-enter the house. It was better if he didn't hurry things. He had worked out every moment of the process. From the first instant, he saw the low hinge of the neck reared up hard and firm against the evening sky. He had made a fine art of it. There was no wasted motion. His procedure had been shaped, molded, until it was a beautiful thing. The first overwhelming sense of presence as the neck of the shelter came around him, then the blood-freezing rush of air as the descent lift hurtled down all the way to the bottom. 
in the grandeur of the shelter itself. Every afternoon, as soon as he was home, he made his way down into it, below the surface, concealed and protected in its steel silence, as he had done since the first day. Now the chamber was full, not empty, filled with endless cans of food, pillows, books, vid tapes, audio tapes, prints on the walls, bright fabrics, textures, and colors, even vases of flowers. The shelter was his place, where he crouched, curled up, surrounded by everything he needed. Delaying things as long as possible, he hurried back through the house and rummaged into the audio tape file. He'd sit down on the shelter until dinner, listening to Wind in the Willows. His parents knew where to find him. He was always down there. Two hours of uninterrupted happiness, alone by himself in the shelter. And when dinner was over, he'd hurry back down, to stay until time for bed. Sometimes late at night, when his parents were sound asleep, he got quietly up and made his way outside to the shelter neck and down into its silent depth to hide until morning. He found the audio tape and hurried through the house out onto the back porch and into the yard. The sky was bleak gray, shot with streamers of ugly black clouds. The lights of the town were coming on here and there. The yard was cold and hostile. He made his way uncertainly down the steps and froze. A vast, yawning cavity loomed, a gaping mouth, vacant and toothless, fixed open to the night sky. There was nothing else. His shelter was gone. He stood for an endless time, the tape clutched in one hand, the other hand on the porch railing. Night came on, the dead hole dissolved in darkness. The whole world gradually collapsed into silence and abysmal gloom. Weak stars came out, lights in nearby houses came on fitfully, cold and faint. The boy saw nothing. He stood unmoving, his body rigid as stone, still facing the great pit where the shelter had been. His father was standing beside him. How long have you been here? His father was saying. How long, Mike? Answer me. With a violent effort, Mike managed to drag himself back. You're home early, he muttered. I left the store early on purpose. I wanted to be here when you got home. It's gone. Yes. His father's voice was cold, without emotion. The shelter is gone. I'm sorry, Mike. I called them and told them to take it back. Why? Couldn't pay for it. Not this Christmas, with those grills everyone's getting. Can't compete with them. Broke off and then continued wretchedly. They were damn decent. They gave me back half the money I put in. His voice twisted ironically. Knew if I made a deal with them before Christmas, I'd come out better. They can resell it to somebody else. Mike said nothing. Try to understand, his father went on harshly. I had to throw what capital I could scrape together into the store. I have to keep it running. It was either give up the shelter or the store. And if I gave up the store, then we wouldn't have anything. His father caught hold of his arm. Then we'd have to give up the shelter, too. His thin, strong fingers dug in spasmodically. You're growing up. You're old enough to understand. We'll get one later. Maybe not the biggest, the most expensive, but something. It was a mistake, Mike. I couldn't swing it. Not with the goddamn adapter things to buck. I'm keeping up the NAT payments, though. And your school tab. I'm keeping that going. This isn't a matter of principle. He finished desperately. Can't help it. Do you understand, Mike? I had to do it. Mike pulled away. Where are you going? His father hurried after him. Come back here. 
He grabbed for his son frantically, but in the gloom he stumbled and fell. Stars blinded him as his head smashed into the edge of the house, pulled himself up painfully, and groped for some support. When he could see again, the yard was empty. His son was gone. Mike! he yelled. Where are you? There was no answer. The night wind blew clouds of snow around him, a thin, bitter gust of chilled air, wind and darkness, nothing else. Bill O'Neill wearily examined the clock on the wall. It was 9.30. He could finally close the doors and lock up the big, dazzling store, push the milling, murmuring throngs of people outside and on their way home. Thank God, he breathed, as he held the door open for the last old lady, loaded down with packages and presents. He threw the cold bolt in place and pulled down the shade. On a mob, I never saw so many people. All done, Al Connors said from the cash register. I'll count the money. You go around and check everything. Make sure we got all of them out. O'Neill pushed his blonde hair back and loosened his tie. He lit a cigarette gratefully, then moved around the store, checking light switches, turning off the massive GEC displays and appliances. Finally he approached the huge bomb shelter that took up the center of the floor. Climbed the ladder to the neck and stepped onto the lift. The lift dropped with the whoosh, and a second later he stepped out in the cave-like interior of the shelter. In one corner, Mike Foster sat curled up in a tight heap, his knees drawn up against his chin, his skinny arms wrapped around his ankles. His face was pushed down, only his ragged brown hair showed. He didn't move as the salesman approached him astounded. Jesus, O'Neill exclaimed. It's that kid. Mike said nothing. He hugged his legs tighter and buried his head as far down as possible. What the hell are you doing down here? O'Neill demanded, surprised and angry. His outrage increased. I thought your folks got one of these. Then he remembered. That's right. We had to repossess it. Al Connors appeared from the descent lift. What's holding you up? Let's get out of here and... He saw Mike and broke off. What's he doing down here? Get him out and let's go. Come on, kid, O'Neill said gently. Time to go home. Mike didn't move. The two men looked at each other. I guess we're going to have to drag him out, Connor said grimly. He took off his coat and tossed it over the decontamination fixture. Come on, let's get it over with. It took both of them. The boy fought desperately without sound, clawing and struggling and tearing at them with his fingernails, kicking them, slashing at them fighting them when they grabbed him. They half-dragged, half-carried him to the descent lift and pushed him onto it long enough to activate the mechanism. O'Neill rode up with him. Connors came immediately after. Grimly, efficiently, they bundled the boy to the front door, threw him out, and locked the bolt after him. Wow, Connors gasped, sinking down against the counter. His sleeve was torn and his cheek was cut and gashed. His glasses hung from one ear. His hair was rumpled and he was exhausted. Think we ought to call the cops? There's something wrong with that kid. O'Neill stood by the door, panting for breath and gazing out into the darkness. He could see the boy sitting on the pavement. He's still out there, he muttered. People pushed by the boy on both sides. Finally, one of them stopped and got him up. The boy struggled away and then disappeared into the darkness. The larger figure picked up its packages, hesitated a moment, and then went on. O'Neill turned away. What a hell of a thing. He wiped his face with his handkerchief. He sure put up a fight. What was the matter with him? He never said anything, not a goddamn word. Christmas is a hell of a time to repossess something, O'Neill said. He reached shakily for his coat. It's too bad. Wish they could have kept it. 
Connor shrugged. No ticky, no laundry. Why the hell can't we give them a deal? Maybe O'Neill struggled to get the word out. Maybe sell the shelter wholesale to people like that. Connors glared at him angrily. Wholesale? And then everybody wants it wholesale. It wouldn't be fair. And how long would we stay in business? How long would GEC last that way? Guess not very long, O'Neill admitted moodily. Use your head. Connors laughed sharply. What you need is a good stiff drink. Come on in the back closet. I've got a fifth of Hag and Hag in a drawer back there. A little something to warm you up before you go home. It's what you need. Mike Foster wandered aimlessly along the dark street along the crowds of shoppers hurrying home. He saw nothing. People rushed against him, but he was unaware of them. Lights, laughing people, the honking of car horns, the clang of signals. He was blank, his mind empty and dead. He walked automatically without consciousness or feeling. To his right, a garish neon sign winked and glowed in the deepening night shadows, a huge sign, bright and colorful. Peace on Earth, Goodwill to Men, Public Shelter Admission, 50 Cents. This has been Foster, You're Dead, by Philip K. Dick. I'm Mike Vendetti. Production Copyright 2017 by Audiobooks by Mike Vendetti. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hello, I'm Evan. And we're going to talk about Foster, You're Dead. Uh, Medium length short story? (laughs) A fairly long short story. First published in Star Science Fiction Stories number three, published in 1955. And it's public domain. It was not known to be public domain at the time of... uh, uh, before, basically, I made the fact known because the Philip K. Dick estate lied and said it was published oh. in a different issue of a different magazine. And I did extensive evidence to sh- show that this was fraudulent and now it's public domain. So I'm wow. very proud to have brought wow. this okay story. It's pretty good. Um, into the public domain, mm-hmm. um, at least more publicly than it was sort of being talked about as possibly being public domain here and there on the internet. Mm. Um, Philip K. Dick sold it to uh, Ballantyne, but it also got published in the Soviet Union, apparently without uh, him getting paid for it. There's yeah, a story saying great. that um, the U.S. Post Office, um, it says the author's complimentary copy was destroyed by the U.S. Post Office as communist propaganda, which I thought was... <laughs> pretty amazing <laughs> yeah and um there's another uh somewhere it says elsewhere that um that he he didn't get paid for it but maybe also he did pay his taxes on the rubles that it was worth or like maybe 250 dollars that they may have <laughs> not sent or who knows it's all confusing but uh, it was apparently the first philip k dick story to get published in russian and it's very appropriate as a, to be published in a major Russian paper. It was or magazine. It was like a, a magazine supplement to a Pravda, I think. It's a Cold War story um, about America gone mad with um, with capitalist uh, solutions to pro- capitalist private solutions to the uh, problem of nuclear fallout. 
It's like it's like prepperism meets uh, post capitalism. Yes, yes. Well, the de- government government's not going to help you uh, prep for the apocalypse, right? <laughs> In our reality, they don't uh, they don't uh, you know give you a bug out bag, <laughs> government issued bug out bag. But the thing is, is preppers are kind of diluted, right? I think the whole society is diluted, but you mean like the United States society in general, or I'm talking, talking about, about in the story? story. What are we talking, talking about? Everybody in a story. I was talking All about preppers in reality. You know, like no, no, no. I'm, there's I'm, a, I'm, there are magazines dedicated to prepping, and and it's like your zombie apocalypse bag, and and not everybody thinks it's going to be a zombie apocalypse, but there's this phenomenon called like what's in your bug out bag. It's like when when the shit hits the fan and they have all these acronyms like uh, W A S when the shit hits the fan as an acronym. That's funny. And I think I'm out of date with that. I think the I thought they were called like survivalists or something. Yeah, the like, survivalists was how they were called in the '80s, but they had an excuse then. It was nuclear war. Right. Right. So now, now the government preppers. doesn't push that. So so we're stuck with you know. And and the thing is, is if you look a little bit on YouTube, you'll see like people there's whole communities where that they do this that they have like some guy works at a regular job and then on the weekends he practices for the bug out and right. he says you know how to how to live off berries and all the things that are sort of happening at the school in the story right i love how it's like mainstream in the story like they're practicing their digging and sharpening their knives at school yep. <laughs> in fact all their classes are not about history and uh, math and chemistry but they're all about survival so the yeah. gym instructor says, Foster, you're dead. It calls out the title. I know. And it's the kid is exactly what you would expect if that was your school situation where he's just having a psychological breakdown out of fear and anxiety. <laughs> like, the, like living like that must be just. Stop, drop, and roll. Uh, yeah. Like, duck and cover. Yeah, duck and cover. And then um, there might be a community fallout shelter at the, at the, the height of of the uh, Cold War, but this is a kind of a very anachronistic story for today, I think, it, it, at least the way it's it's told here in the adaptation, which I think we should talk about. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's they, they don't stick with the same premise, but Evan, you said something very curious on Twitter when I, I, I was confirming that you had the right episode of the show, uh, Electric Dreams, you said this yeah. was reminded you of a life in China or a documentary about life in China. Well, what, remi- what reminded me of the adaptation, and I, I guess it's in the story too, is is you ask the average person how they feel about cameras or police or face recognition software, and they just all think, "Well, it makes me safe, and we don't have to worry about terrorism or something like that." Oh uh, yeah. And that's that's what's the what struck me. You know, not the te- not the technology is the same or anything, but mm. certainly like the, there's a metal like a what are those called? Those conveyor belts with the X-rays for your bags at every metro stop. Wow! You can't even China get on the subway without yeah, without at least wow. in this city, you can't even get on the subway without putting your bags through that. That's crazy. But, you know, in in Taiwan, it's not that way. That's crazy. Uh, I have no idea. Yeah, they were that that how they feel about it here, and they just feel safe. That's the majority opinion. Police are your friends. And, you know, how my school has face recognition software. I can't get in without the computer scanning my face wow. and identifying me. Holy crap. 
That's crazy. <laughs> I know I. But you don't see like you don't see people selling those those fake those masks that give you the fake. You know. Everyone's into it. That trick those cameras or yeah. you know, people seem to accept it as a good thing. It's not even a banal thing. It's it's actually a positive. So that's what really struck me in the adaptation. Wow. Yeah, uh, I I don't know what to think about that. Uh, you, did you like it, the adaptation? I liked. Um, it's called Safe and Sound, right? I, I didn't like the second half as much, but I, I liked how the first half felt, and um, I, I wish it had more of the the commons versus the private thing the story has. Mm. I, mean, I guess the that thing they wear on the wrist that's. Um, uh, that's kind of a private, it's kind of a corporation, right? But um, they didn't really emphasize that at that point. I, no. I think for me, there's so much about the commons and, and the lack of the commons and kind of capitalist America. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are calling it a money. satire, uh, the original story. The mm-hmm. adaptation is not a satire at all, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah. And, and, and the, those. They, I think they aged up Foster. Um, they also gender flipped mm-hmm. Foster and flipped the name so that Foster's the first name. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, I, I think if we are adding to the Redderizer today, the Philokidic Redderizer, um, a story where a kid has basically a nervous breakdown, this is one of those stories. Mm-hmm. Along with um, uh, the Beetlejuice story, what's it called? Uh, Tony and the Beatles. Where basically the, the yeah. adult society around him has gone insane, um, and the kid is just trying to survive and not understand. I mean, I remember this sort of thing. Uh, um, Paul, you should as well. Evan, you you might. Um, the just the looking at the the map and seeing how far away from the nuclear bomb it's going to go off and blow up your city in the eighties. Um, uh, I live in New York City. I figured, okay, I have just get dead. to the Catskills. I- uh, yeah, I'd have to get all the way up to the Catskills to survive. That's not going to happen. Bye-bye. Because yeah. Yeah, that's the only direction I could go. I mean, west and south is Philadelphia. I'll nuke that, too. So northeast is Boston. So, yeah, so, like, the way out, there's only one way out, and everyone's going to be taking it. You so, go into yeah. the subway and become a chud. Capitalistic, not capitalistic, cannibalistic, humanoid underground dweller, right? I, I mean, <laughs> all those stories about oh yeah, trying to survive in the subways and all all that. I mean, that had a really big impression on me. Yeah, it, it's traumatizing, it, right? It's like, oh yeah, th- that's the only way we're going to survive is living in the subways. Great. Oh my god! And, and there was these movies on TV. Uh, that, you know, it's like the day after and it's basically, you know, a bunch of reasonable people trying to survive after the nuclear bomb and everybody's dying of radiation and everybody's covered in burns and the government's not doing a very good job. And, and, and then apparently that, that, I think it was that particular film actually saw by Reagan made him actually to try and denuclearize, which is pretty uh, insane that it took a TV dramatization of what the effects of nuclear war would do to change the mind of a president. Well, I mean, it's not so crazy anymore, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, at, the t- at the time it was kind of odd, yeah, that yeah. Yeah, so, so suddenly we start getting um, 
summit talks with Gorbachev in Iceland after the day after, and lots of uh, lots of people drew the, drew the direct line back then. It's easy to see now that yeah, a TV show scared Reagan to c- embrace arms control because early Reagan was very very hawkish and like oh no we're not gonna negotiate with the Soviets, evil empire and all that stuff. And yeah, after that, it's kind of like he kind of realized that nuclear war is a no-win situation. And it isn't. So, I would say... Oh, go for it, Evan. No, just one thing I, I wanted to to think about a little bit um, was from the story, especially because the, the adaptation doesn't really get into this too much. Um, is, you know, just the, the, I guess, but the reality, the history of civil defense, right. And this, I, I, mean, I have the image of the, of the individual bomb shelter in one's backyard, right. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a mainstay of, of post-apocalyptic literature. But if we actually look like at World War II, what London did, mm-hmm. what Japan did during, you know, they, there was some public organization, you know, to organize communities into civil defense, you know, and the air, the siren goes off and you go to these public places. I, that's my basic understanding of how this worked. There were, you know, maybe they repurposed private homes and things for the kind of civil defense, but it was an organized system. It wasn't, it was part of the commons, mm-hmm. it was part of the accepted part of the commons. And, you know, I, even, even growing up, I remember the fallout shelter my school my grade school was a fallout shelter and crazy you know, the signs were still there mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and now we have all sorts of i don't know if we have to worry so much about nuclear war but we have climate change and all kinds of other ecological disasters to prep for but i don't know how much of this public sphere for civil defense is is in place anywhere anywhere so, i don't know if anyone knows it seems it's rather uh, yeah. an atrophy. I would assume it's it's completely. I mean, there's competent. a catastrophe, and then what? FEMA comes in or something. That's. I mean, that there are but some constituents. Civil defense, even as a part of democracy, you know, people participating collectively in their own defense in their communities. I don't know. It seems all that 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 part of being a citizen is atrophied as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was. Um, I was looking at the story and uh, one of the things I, I like about the story is we don't find out what a P is until quite late into the story. Um, and it basically, I, it doesn't stand for participant or prepper or preparedness. Yeah. Preparedness. So if you're anti preparedness, which is what his father's being accused of and what he in turn is being, you know, suffering under being an anti P um, this is uh, almost like anti-patriot too, right? Anti, anti, anti-capitalist, anti all sorts yeah, of things. For sure. And I think that uh, although I'm not a big fan of that adaptation, um, I think what they did of it, which is basically ignore the story and then say let's get that same feeling but make it modern. I think that that actually was kind of, um, especially hearing how it is in China. Uh, I, I didn't realize that they were like. You know, I knew the United States was going crazy with like <laughs> preparedness or uh, security, uh, and and then reading this story right at the beginning here, I'm just going to read the first paragraph. School was agony as always. 
Only today it was worse. Mike Foster finished weaving his two watertight baskets and sat rigid, while all around him other children worked. Outside the concrete and steel building, the late afternoon sun shone cool. Hills sparkled green and brown in the crisp autumn air. In the overhead sky, a few gnats, N-A-T-S capitalized, circled lazily above the town. So those gnats turn up a little bit later, and those are basically, um, what, drones? They're civil defense drones that are uh, Mm. there to protect them, but actually kind of surveil them to see... Uh, you know, what's going on down on the earth as the bombs start dropping? Like, it's kind of weird, right? They're living under a kind of um, totalitarianism that is, it's like private taxes. So that each community, right, he t- asks his father to tell him the story later on. Um, each community has um, a preparedness rating and a preparedness flag. And uh, yeah. if you if you all contribute... You get to use the school fallout shelter, and if you all contribute, the whole town gets a uh, positive rating. And um, if you get a uh, local fallout shelter, you don't have to try and edge your way into a neighbor's fallout shelter, which is a no-no because you're like a, a freeloader, right? There's there's all sorts of really cool, horrible stuff going on in here, um, but it also feels like like and Marissa is going to dig this, I think. Um, it feels like a prequel to Fallout, the game. Mm-hmm. You, you know, like totally, yeah. If you follow the, I, I mean, a little bit of the mythology that's behind the Fallout premise is <laughs> that um, there are these for-profit Fallout shelters that are going to be planted all over the community and all over the world. And if you uh, are a good citizen in the 1950s cyber future of whatever 2050s or whatever it is. Um, you're gonna be able to survive. So this is like this is that world in a se- in essence. And what what he's re- weaving in a waterproof baskets at school, it's because that's what his his descendants are gonna need to know and and find the berries that won't poison him. And uh, and gym classes, can you run away from the gas fast <laughs> enough? Mm-hmm. It's pretty monstrous. Uh, it's a it's a total horror show in in essence. Yeah. But yeah, I'll, I'll, and you can totally see how that culture will carry on into the into these like fallout communities as well like mm-hmm. just that mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, you, you have to behave exactly the most prepared citizens, the most prepared communities. And a lot of the game of Fallout is sort of, you know, you go into these vaults um and and they just had some sort of massive failed social experiment. Right. Yeah. Where the overseer is in charge, and you know, you 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 wear your um in 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 our world, um people want to have those uh, pip boys, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> it was a game sort of souvenir, but in reality, the 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 pip boy is, I guess, a little bit way like the decks of the uh, the adaptation, right? It's sort of a mandatory monitoring. Um, once you get your Pip-Boy put on to you in the game at a certain age, it doesn't come off, as far as I can tell. And it, it, it can give you drugs, it can stim you, it can do also, you know, it's a, it's not just a, a handy tool like they're, um, 
sort of like our, I guess the Dex in the show is like a, a cell phone. Or yeah, something. it's got like the, all the iPhone elements of like yeah. you can't you need it to to navigate the world. You want the most up to date model. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was I was I was with Evan. You five for your kid that looks like that. I was with Evan. Yeah, I was with you. Like the first half, I was like, oh, this is very interesting. But I just think that it didn't know what to do with what it had done, and mm-hmm. and that at the it doesn't it, this story the original story it begins and ends kind of the same way with him outside of a fallout shelter, a public fallout shelter, and you have to have yeah peace on earth, goodwill to men, public shelter, admission fifty cents. Fifty cents, yeah. So if you, yeah, if you don't have the fifty cents on you, you're dead. Foster. Which has that, I love that visual in the story as well, where the sirens are going off and this poor little kid doesn't have the 50 cents to get in the public shelter and everyone right. is just pushing past him. And I think um, Philip K. Dick used the word like they're excited. You know, it's not just mm. like fear, it's like they're excited because they're running down to their protective shelters and this poor little kid. <laughs> and he is totally traumatized like, too, right? Like, yeah. he, that, what's he doing yeah. in that fallout yeah. shelter? Is, he 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 huddles there all night as long as he can, listening to the wind with the his willow. audiobooks. Yeah, with his audio. <laughs> yeah, I love that little detail. Yeah, I totally related to that. They're like, just from reading that story, you know, it puts you in that mindset. And mm-hmm. then when he's down there and he's safe and he's just got his audiobooks and he can't hear the neighbors like cooing and crying anymore. It's mm. like ah, <laughs> I want a fallout shelter. Mm. <laughs> it is a this- safe place of safety and security, right? Mm-hmm. In a world that's gone mad, and people did actually buy them for their own backyards. It mm-hmm. was a deal. I mean, it wasn't fake. Not yeah, everybody I mean, did it. I, I mean, I mean, yeah. Philip Kiedek is just following that trend. Like, so what if that just became, yeah, the 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 thing, the the eternal quest for illusion, very illusory safety. I, I want to take read a quote from. Uh, from the story that it struck me when I was reading and I had tweeted it out to you guys mm-hmm. and, and what it ties into. He says that they sold people as many cars and washing machines and television ships sh- sets as they could use. He says Nats and Bob shelters aren't good for anything, so people never get all they can use. He says factories can keep turning out guns and gas masks forever. And for as long as people are afraid, they'll keep paying for them because they think if they don't, they might get killed. And maybe a man gets tired of paying for a new car every year and stops, but he's never going to stop buying shelters to protect his children. And I tied that right into the the mindset and how the NRA functions and why people start stockpiling guns and why people buy hundreds and hundreds of guns, even though they have more guns that could survive any zombie apocalypse, they still buy guns and there's a artificial weird scarcity. Like, oh, Obama's going to, I mean, every, every time they thought when Obama was president that he might put on guns restrictions, gun sales, whatnot, because, Oh, we got to get before they're gone, before he takes right. them away from mm-hmm. us, even mm-hmm. though you might have, more guns in your uh, house than you can know do it. I have relatives who have more guns than, well, would be needed for a zombie apocalypse, and they <laughs> still buy more guns. Well, just, uh, uh, just to be fair, though, a lot of that is, I mean, a lot of the people who buy guns, they're not buying, like, the same gun over and over again. It's like collecting, right? And guys, guys are really, I mean, yeah. you've seen Jay Leno's garage? He's, <laughs> he's got He's got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cars, right? 
four like giant like basically a whole street is just devoted to uh getting more and weirder and stranger cars there are a lot of people who collect guns not because um you know they're worried literally that they're going to be attacked although those people exist there are a lot of people who collect guns just because they like guns and guns are an interesting technology in the same way that some people collect computers right but <laughs> Um, we could we could imagine a scenario where they're gonna come and take our computers away, and I feel like that all the time when when Windows comes up with a new update that makes me think, oh, I'm gonna have to go to Linux this year. It's gonna have to happen, you know, some <laughs> some disability that it, they're they're building into the into the operating system. It it makes me paranoid, and so part of that's I mean the thing is is literally guns can. Uh, do jobs, right? You, you can hunt with them. You can, uh, quote unquote, protect your home. Uh, they can make you feel secure. You can kill yourself with them. <laughs> Other people, they, they literally do a job. Whereas a fallout shelter is, is in essence saying that the only purpose that the government has, right? Which is to protect, uh, in my view, the only purpose the government has is to protect citizens collectively. It has failed, right? So if you're, if everyone has to build their own private follow shelter, and I think this is the, the satire that Philip K. Dick is going for, that he claims he's going for in this story. If everybody has to do privates, are we all supposed to have our own navies? Are we all supposed to have our own armies, our own follow shelter, our own uh, diplomatic corps? No, it's ridiculous. And that's kind of, he's combined that with consumerism here. Mm -hmm. um and and the thing is is you know in the way that the adaptation works it makes it like look at all these kids they're dressed all funny they're playing these weird games with their devices and we get this hippie kid whose mom drives a what was what was that a toyota prius right yeah um so she's driving an old-fashioned car right and her, her um her mom looks out the window and she says sheep to the kids as they walk by into the school. And then when she walks into the school, uh, the security guard calls her, hey, mom shirt. Right? Yep. <laughs> she's wearing a shirt like her mom made or something, right? So there's, there is a, a, a tight connection in the story. <clears throat> and at least at the beginning of the uh, adaptation to consumerism and, and kind of the, the craziness of it. There's a there's a great short story, um, very very funny I think, <clears throat> uh, by C.C. McCap I think is the name, and it's about uh, a sudden craze for um, you know how there's always uh, the Cabbage Patch Kid craze or the remember fidget spinners? I got a fidget spinner for Christmas this year. <laughs> so you did? My, yeah yeah. <laughs> one of my uh, relatives, she's really bad at. At picking gifts, so I think she took one of her daughters. Oh, home. I think she did well. <laughs> well <laughs> it was pretty funny. Um, she she gave me a fidget spinner and like okay. <laughs> anyway, that was that was one of those things that it was just like a huge. All your dreams and come then, true. Yeah, and then you know six months later they're all on sale for ninety nine percent off, right? Um, so mm -hmm. when when we have that sort of thing happening in our world in that story, it was for coffins. And everybody started filling their garage with coffins, their living room with coffins, and there was advertisements on TV. And it all turned out because of some uh, Madison Avenue computer 
went a little nuts and uh, ten times the budget missed a decimal place for advertising for coffins. And and of course the the, the satire of that story is that people end up using them. <laughs> hmm. And then the end of the story. A guy uh, is walking out of the desert. He's been unaware of what's been going on in the the reality of uh, of the rest of the world. Walks out of the desert into San Francisco, and he with his uh, donkey, and uh, he sees um, he sees a newspaper and he sees all the missing bodies. Right, everybody finally eventually used their coffins because they made death so attractive. Um, and he he turns to his donkey and says, "Well, it's just you and me. I guess we'll have to start over." <laughs> he says to his donkey, as in he's gonna have sex with a jackass, right? Oh. <laughs> and, and it's kind of a circular story about saying humans are jackasses. And it's very very <laughs> funny satire. This what, is what's the name of that story? I'm trying to remember the name of it. I did. I think uh, I did a reading short and deep on it, but I'll dig it up. Yeah. Um, it's it's a very funny uh, premise. This one's much more harrowing than it is funny. It's much more what, sorry? Harrowing. It makes you feel like right. traumatized. The boy is traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it also... I, I like the... No, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Evan. No, I'm just going to continue on with the, the, the role of, like, the, the early part of the, the adaptation, the first part that I... I rather liked, you know, where everything is being commodified. There's even that little moment I, I, where I hope you didn't miss it, where the, the guy helps her buy the bracelet thing. Mm-hmm. And then he immediately began to, to kiss her because, right. you know, yeah. all, all human relations have been commodified in this way. Mm-hmm. So you give someone a favor, you have sex. That's, that's just the assumption. Uh, mm-hmm. in the There's a lot of undercooked stuff there though. Uh, like what, what, what like so, what does that have to do with the rest of the plot? I don't know. But then there was this other girl who was like, was that other girl who was, was she? What was she doing in the closet with the other guy? I don't know. Yeah, that that that, that that's left that's left unsaid. What what the two of them were doing together? Because the the because they said the kid had, was turning off his thing for fifteen minutes every every yeah. day, and it was clearly so that they could have relations. I mean, I mean, I think. The implication is, given the reveals at the end, that is probably harmless, and he was just turning off so that he could spend time with her and she not be tracked by it. And that's that was he's like, okay, you can have sex with me, but turn off your bloody thing because I don't want people to know you were doing this. And thirteen other people are doing it, and then there's this whole end reveal that shows like that this right. service guy was help was being manipulated. Right. I don't know what, what the hell's going on the there. The clumsiest reveal. It was very weird. Uh, but, well, ba- ba- basically, the way I interpreted this is that the uh, the uh, the the executive slash uh, corporate slash government person was ba- basically manipulated a false threat to increase to uh, increase uh, purchase of security and basically had this this tech guy basically talk into Foster to basically. Manufacture a a fake attack so that right. they could grab her mom. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we don't th- even know if those like thirteen or whatever they were fifteen decks things mm-hmm. turning off is even true because that information came from him. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, I think there's a lot of disinformation that he spread. He spread and had spread to just basically manipulate her into action 
I'm, I, I mean, I mean, I mean, this whole t- tie-ins a little undercooked, as you said, Jesse, with the whole idea. Yeah, There's implications that her her father suffered from methyl, mental illness, and maybe she does too. And they basically yeah. leverage that potential mental illness, that potential schizophrenia, to basically manipulate her into making a terrorist attack so they could grab her mom and just and also more tech stuff to everybody. Yeah, that, very, it, very it, simple. It was, it was like, <laughs> they were putting the vices down on the on the society. The They're trying to control the society more and more. I mean, I, it almost felt like it was trying to be a metaphor for something going on in, I was going to say in the States, but it sounds like in, in China as well, just like insane security theater. Uh, and then we ramp up the threat. I mean, we, we don't hear in the news now. It's all about Russia, Russia, Russia. Right. There isn't. Uh, it used to be terrorism, terrorism, terrorism of the week. You know this. That we got a th- we got this threat happening. By the way, that story is called "All and All the Earth a Grave." Uh, it's from Galaxy, Ooh, December nice nineteen sixty three. It's very funny, very cute and short. Um, so uh, I don't know what's going on in that adaptation. It just it started off interesting. It has um, something to say, but whatever it's saying, it doesn't. It's not clear enough to be. Um, broadcast basically uh, yeah, another failed episode I was, very disappointed. Yeah. I was very disappointed because I thought we were finally going to get like a true mental illness because I don't think we've had that in this series and it's something Dick was constantly writing about and it's one thing that's not really ha- that's not in this story right that there's no clear there's no clear evidence that anybody's mentally ill other than the society as a whole uh, Foster is just yeah. like he's just a kid that's his excuse for not buying like his dad really i think he has the right attitude he lives yeah in a foster crazy society, is society but bob foster yeah, yeah yeah he's not mentally ill he's just totally like psychologically damaged from everyone around him yeah he's and so the, anxious his his dad is uh i mean the what happens with his the story goes on a bit long like i think it's not the best written story by pkd just because it has right he's there's this whole plot about and this is for the rhetorizer too like running a small business um running a Mm -hmm. uh you know a a retail furniture business or retail television business this is just a common uh, maybe his mom or dad was a A yeah. television store operator but he he he's he's really worried about you know business and running the business and that sort of interferes with the storytelling which is is you know we have to have the money to to keep the business afloat and maybe at christmas people will buy some real wood furniture hopefully um and then when he does cave into his wife and his kids demand um it it goes exactly as he said it would, which was it was a it was a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not like a nuclear war happened at the end that we know of for sure, right? It could be another drill. <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't I don't think it is another drill, but it it there's something there's something. Um, well, I think that society by that point, like. There might not even be a real threat of nuclear war anymore, for all we know, because th- that culture is just now so embedded in that fear state of buying the fallout shelters, and that's how you, uh, yeah, that's how you get status now. 
I, I really wonder what they thought yeah, of this in the Soviet intense. Union when they published it. Uh, I mean, what were you I mean, say, Evan? Sorry. No, definitely, it's a status symbol, right? Even though the the, the salesman relationship, it's it's just a used car salesman. Yeah. Right. The, the scene and, is very much like buying a used a new car, except a, I guess a car has utility, a use value that yeah. these shelters yeah. don't. Uh, and one of those salesmen the a flipped apartment in a city, I guess, maybe an right. example of something. People buy for status that doesn't really have a use value. Like now you kind of need an apartment that looks good on Instagram as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, you're not a real, it's not a real apartment. But also at the end of that story, one of those salesmen kind of gets a conscience and says like, you know, maybe we should offer cheaper, basically, home, like safety to these people who can't afford it. And the other guy's like, mm, let's just go out for a drink. Don't be stupid. Then everyone will want cheap yeah. safety. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, yeah. We gotta make, gotta keep our bottom line after all. Yeah, you gotta make safety expensive. Otherwise, they don't, they don't have a job. So it, it would be interesting to see uh, the world outside of the cities as are depicted in this story. In the story, mm-hmm. we never get outside the suburb, right? So uh, I'm I'm I know this to be true. I moved around a lot. When you're in a bubble of a community and everybody thinks that Reeboks are the only kinds of shoes that are cool to wear, um, mm-hmm. you don't uh, appreciate that other places don't care about Reebok shoes, right? Or that you know uh, yeah. you, you have to go see the new uh, Rambo two movie because it's the best movie ever, uh, <laughs> whatever it is. Uh, you know, your Walkman isn't a Sony Walkman. Oh no, right? Like uh, that, oh, that, no, no. that bubble that that the high school is in, and and the society sort of pressures into the high school, and and the the, the teachers and the principals often being told to or just doing it out of stupidity, bring these. You know, you'll have a school assembly about something political uh, that kids can do nothing about. Hey kids, mm-hmm. here's some stress. Absolutely of no value to you, but make sure you feel it. Um, obviously, it's doing somebody's uh, somebody good to control the uh, the story. But here, the the actual presidential uh, federal government only shows up in a memory, right? W- mm-hmm. With the father telling the son a story he's heard many times, how they were presented with the the flag and you can, well, at least in the audiobook version, you can tell um, that it can be read as a um, as a uh, a bitter memory as well as a sign of a you know a proud memory. It's like uh, the time you met Donald Trump <laughs> right before he was right. president. You you can say yes, I met him, and he seemed really nice at the time. Now I hate him. <laughs> like there's this kind of. Um, Double think that I see celebrities do when they talk about Donald Trump's this year. You know, he seemed like a really nice guy when I met him, but his policies are terrible, right? Yeah. And they, you have this sort of double feeling here when the president came to town and he was handed the flag and and the, he was participating in the preparedness, but that was before they, you know, sort of went as crazy as they did. What was that, like 10 years ago, right? And that, notice that it's the same president. Right. So if it's eight years ago, um, maybe it could be the same president. But uh, he says, 
how did he look, Dad? And he says, he looks just like he does on TV. Right? Does on TV. Like he's still Does. Yes, that's, so, a very, yeah, that's a good catch. Like, well, what happens? Why do we still have the same president? He shouldn't serve more than two terms. I mean, I mean, the most that a president could theoretically serve would be 10 years. And the only way that would ha- what happened is if he's the vice president, he becomes president in the second year of his president's office and then gets elected to two terms thereafter. Mm-hmm. So that's the longest someone can currently legally be president of the United States is 10 years. Right. Yeah. But maybe what? if you make the people afraid enough. That's right. Which which makes me think of the watchman of of Watchmen and Nixon being president per term after term. So yeah, yeah. Or like, um, it also makes me think of Trump right now, like with the with the wall. Like, oh, it's I've been there, and you wouldn't even imagine how scary it is. Like, <laughs> like, the whole thing, like, just put a little bit of fear into people, and then you can manipulate them. Or, or, or going back to the fallout sort of theme, a boy and his dog. Mm. And there's the, there's a bit in a boy and his dog Harlan Ellison story where the, where uh, where Rover uh, asks asks him to start naming the recent presidents and it goes Kennedy 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 <laughs> like yeah yeah they were trying to make well, also if the president is is redundant because all actual governance is privatized then privatized you just, and localized, you just need yeah. the symbol you just need the fish hat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the president it's like the, or something. The, president, the president is an image. Uh, no, the president is he's the chief of uh, the uh, chamber of commerce, basically, right? His job yeah. is to promote business, not to uh, defend the country. And and the Soviets, as appearing mm-hmm. in the story, um, are a complete enigma. All we know is they keep developing weapons that are going to make your old fallout shelter uh, obsolete. There's a couple of things. They, as soon as uh, Bob Foster buys the, uh, the the most deluxe 1972 uh, Fallout shelter, oh, they develop a boring technology that instead of just nuking the surface, they dig down into the earth and nuke everything under the surface too. So you're gonna have to pay up more, Bob. <laughs> right. Or well, like, I mean, that's another thing I was thinking of with the story is. This is going on right now, but it's the billionaires who mm. are – they're not digging fallout shelters. They're all flying to New Zealand and buying mansions there that's to escape right. the climate I, change apocalypse. Right. I heard about that. I was going to talk to you about that, Marissa. Like this whole idea like billionaires are going to buy up New Zealand and escape everything there. It's like how do you feel about the idea of billionaires colonizing your home country? Yeah, well, basically my home country is a fallout shelter right now yeah, like for the right. for the rich – yeah, in fact, um, I, I follow Kim.com on uh, Twitter, and he said something explicitly like that. Like, like this is the only place in the world that's safe uh, for when climate change is happening, because climate change ain't being stopping. So <laughs> this mm-hmm. is this is where, you, if you aren't buying real, like, he was almost like promoting the idea that this is yeah. the only place to be safe. And it's like, that's at the level we're at now. <laughs> Right. Um, it, it, and wherever it, that information came from, like. <laughs> well, it's cheap, right? Uh, it, it's cheap. And if you're a billionaire uh, buying land in uh, large tracts, you can bring in the, the services it, that you need to service your fallout shelter, a.k.a. New Zealand. Right. It was cheap before they started buying up all that property there. 
Right. <laughs> Not anymore. What's the tra- large tracts of land? Probably there's a little uh, space on the edge for the peons to live, right? Yeah. yeah. But it's also, I mean, if when climate change like kicks in, it's also like we can't really predict exactly which countries are going to be the safest. Like for all we know, New Zealand is. Um, well, it does have some yeah. height. Though right, so mm-hmm. sticking out of the waters. At least one thing we know is gonna. I mean, it, it is kicking in. <laughs> There's no question of that. It's just yeah. whether it's when it gets what, bad how it's gonna it. how it's gonna play out exactly. When but, exactly when all the rest of us are only don't even have fifty cents in our pockets to get into the that's country. Right. <laughs> that's right. Uh. We're all standing on the outside watching the helicopters fly away. Yeah, I. I what are they learning in that school, by the way, in the adaptation? Because it wasn't. I don't. I don't remember any class time other than the, like one scene. Uh, the, the, the the first the first scene that they they talk about radon and and, and the structure radon, which is a radioactive material, which is not funny. And then there was the uh, how to spot a terrorist. Right. How to one. spot a terrorist, which is exactly yeah. <sighs> it, it is analogous to what they're being taught in, uh, in the story, right? If if you see something, say something. Right. Help spot yeah. the terrorist. And uh, there's some surprise. And she and, and, and she does because she spots the pin from mm-hmm. from uh from the bubble. And I uh, wanted I just want to tag back to what you're saying before about people living in bubbles. I thought I thought it was cute that the the people who live outside the society are living in bubbles. I yeah, thought that was the domes ch- or something. It's choice. very yeah. unclear what's what what it's like out there, but we uh, well, are well, well, separated we, from them. We get a we get a sense. Were the bubbles literal? I thought I, I was thinking. Did you guys look at the map? Did you guys see the map at the very beginning? Mm-hmm. I saw the map, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, most most of the United States looks desertified. Yeah, I mean, it looks like climate change has done a done a whomper on the United States, and mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it would be nice nice to see that. But I mean, we get the sense as as, just, as they're driving up to the border that most of the United States is a wasteland now, and the the West just has some of these bubble communities and not much else. So climate change has really done a number on the good old United States in this scenario. I actually saw on Twitter the other day, I think it was yesterday, a a map showing how the deserts are moving east. (laughs) Did you guys see that? It it showed like, you know, 10 years ago and then today how the, 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 the desertification has moved just slightly to the right so that it is drying out. Um, and it's it was not I didn't implausible. See that, but I, yeah, I didn't see that, but I saw recently the whole hundredth meridian moving and the drying of the American West moving eastward. Not yeah, desert. That's, that's what I'm talking. That's what yeah. I'm talking. It's it's not so much desert, but it's since like drier country is yeah, moving right into the into the American uh, grain the, belt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, the, into the place where they grow the food. Yeah. I, I or, mean, oh, sorry, the place where they grow on the corn that's sometimes used as food. Well, there's also there's <laughs> also wheat there's also wheat and other things in Nebraska as well, and soybeans. I mean, this is this this is hitting Minnesota. I mean, here I am sitting in in January, and we haven't had substantial snow in weeks here. Mm-hmm. It's all it's, it's 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 all been shunted south. It's like, I mean, if this keeps up, come spring and summer, we're going to be in a drought and Corn and soybean and wheat prices are going to skyrocket. I better invest now, huh? 
Well, in, in the meantime, there's there's the soybeans sitting in warehouses because of a uh, trade war. So, welcome to welcome to a world. I um, I don't know. I I I was ready to I was ready to give this show a chance, but I watched uh, the previous one, uh, the previous episode, and I actually found an episode that I liked. But I Which just one? don't like uh, the one we're going to talk about in the after show. Um, oh, okay, that one. Oh, yeah. okay, good. Um, because that one, uh, there's something good in there. This one, I, I liked what they were doing. It was better, I think, than a lot of the really terrible app episodes of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Um, and, Paul, did you say that I, on the podcast, I predicted that they would, or not predicted, I asked for a show like this to be made? I, I did I did I did listen to your original hanging hanging stranger podcast and yes you you said what would be great would be great is if yeah they did a show every week they did a different Philip K Dick story you you said it it's on tape and, <laughs> okay, and, and, and so I kind of regret it um, because uh, these are really uh, <laughs> they're uh, they're punishment really I feel like I'm being punished by watching them because I want to like them and then I don't. This one, it was okay. It, it it started off well, but then, you know, we got into here gel. And I was like, oh, I bet somebody in the writer's room got a, like a little medal for that one. Instead <laughs> of hair gel, you got, oh, here gel. We can work this I, in. I, I, I think I think it's, na- it, it's it's nanotechnology of some sort. I don't provide, know. Like, uh, uh, receiving, receiving, uh, receiving sound. It's 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 magic gel, yes. Yeah, um, and the Mean Girl aspect of the episode where they've got, um, I, I guess that Mean Girls is the alternative to you know just bullies who push boys around. I don't know. We had that in here as well, but um, the gender flipping, um, I don't think it ruined anything. I don't know why they did it. I don't know why they flipped the names, other than I guess a girl can be named Foster as a first name. Um, but w- w- the mom doesn't have the same kind of concerns, although they're, I guess, kind of anal- analogous concerns. She's a she's a hippie, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, she's, and a yeah, non-participant, she's a- and we're asserting our rights. But I, I have no idea why they're even in the city. Like, it just didn't uh, make any sense. I, it's so undercooked as to, like... Running yeah. the government or something. She, she was, says she she's an elected that. official, but for what? And are they in oh, Washington D.C. or like? I mean, she, she's a representative of her bubble. That's yeah. the way I got it. And she also said something at one point that when her daughter gets the decks, like that you're undermining everything that we came here for. Right. Just by the fact of have like having it. So because she, must she be stole working. the money or something. Like I, I don't understand. I don't understand how any of it this works. To- yeah, but I got the she gave it her back, be... right? Like, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, it's so confusing. <laughs> that that I like, I I see that they're trying to make connections to the original story. It's like, let's go off in this direction. Oh no, 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 we gotta go back to the original story. So the mom is like the dad saying no to this fallout shelter, and then giving in, right? So mm-hmm. we've got both situations there, but the fallout shelter is. Is to protect you from nuclear bombs, and the dex is to make you feel socially adequate or something. Yeah, and we get that little bit during the 
during the, the very terrorist attack, like, oh, no, you can't go into the school self- shelter. You don't have a deck. So she's trapped outside, kind of like Foster is trapped outside the shelters in the original story. So they were trying to tag back to that there. And, and so what the regular, when she finds the girl who doesn't have the decks, she's got a, she takes her to a library and like, ooh, a library scene, an old library scene, right? Cool. Yeah. Um, and then they just don't do anything with it. They they they, they could have done so much with that too, and and just dropped the ball on that idea. It's like, oh, what can we actually read in the library that they don't actually tell you on the exactly. desk? I was I was waiting for that line. Like, nope, nothing. Sorry. And yeah, you don't get out of the bubble at all in this story. And and then with the reveal at the end, which is not a reveal, it's just a decision. In my view, it's like okay, or, or just was, an exp- explanation of of events. But why? And, um, why would I, you I, I do guess it that way? Remo- to remove the ambiguity, because yeah. until that point, we're really ambiguous on whether she's hearing voices or not, and why and why sh- what she's doing. Things we don't actually even know. She's setting that- her mom up or something, and then her mom's arrested, and then she's like, she's a good communist now, or or anti-communist or whatever it is. Oh. I don't understand what any of that was for. She's a good capital. She basically uh, joins the system, even though, even though, I mean, you can tell when she started rambling at the end and they took her off the platform, she's still not entirely unfragile at that point, and they know it. But that that reveal afterwards is kind of like to just show, like, nope, she wasn't she wasn't hearing voices in her head. She was being uh, manipulated all along. Yeah, she was being programmed, and now she's she's completed. Almost her, right. her because, programming. Because they mentioned earlier about mind control, about the fear of mind control, and in the sense, okay, yes, there's mind control, but it's the government, and the corporates are doing it. It not just the, didn't. Uh, it's so undercooked. Like it, it, it's like they had a plan and then they didn't reveal it to anybody, including <laughs> the, the the rest of the writing staff, because it doesn't make any sense to me. Like what's going on there, it, which is kind of bad when you think about it the fact that at the end of that show that they did that big like backflash of like oh by the way let me quickly explain some of the things to you guys like if you have to do that at the end of your tv show like something is wrong yeah (laughs) like if you can't leave people with either the ambiguous it it opened well so uh it could have been it could have been worked out i was thinking like could they do a straight up adaptation of of the show with not updating it very much, you know, just if they put it in the modern era, the fear of fall, fear of nuclear war is not going to work. So I understand they need to change it, maybe. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But we have evidence, I think, and we'll talk about it in that in the after show uh, that they can do sort of weird uh, adaptations that still are somehow faithful to uh, some of the ideas behind a story. Right. This is a, a story about consumerism. And we have a little bit of that, but then it turns into, a, uh, uh, you know, government control. And I don't think that that's what it is. I don't think the original story of Foster Your Dad is really about government control. I think it's about the absence yeah. of 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 government to, to fulfill services that, the you know, the humans. It's like basically you could do a show about Medicare for all right? um, because really that's what this is, right? Everybody needs healthcare. And now let's privatize it. So you're only allowed to uh, become your own doctor. That's the only way you can get medical services, going to university and studying medical stuff and then building your own hospital for your own body. Like that's the kind of ridiculous 
stupidity that we've got going on um, in this story with regard to fallout shelters, right? Having a fallout shelter in your own backyard as an option is not the same as having a mandatory fallout shelter, right? Nobody forces mm-hmm. you to go and buy guns, even if they are in the Constitution, right? You, it's an option. But basically being forced to buy a fallout shelter or being even forced to buy a car, which is a little more likely, is not the same. So they, hmm. they needed to do something. And that what they did was, I think they said, wouldn't this be a cool opening scene? Let's see where this goes. And then let's explain it at the end. It was just a mess. And yet, you know, the acting was fine, right? The special effects, it was fine. Just doesn't it's just basic writing problems. I don't understand people how they can get away with writing that for a living. It's ridiculous. Hmm. One thing that that's I guess works. Um, have you guys seen these bracelets that kids will wear? <laughs> that they'll record the heart rate, how many? Oh stuff yeah, sure. Yeah, my mom wears GPS one. stuff. Well, yeah. 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 A lot of older people the wear them watch their kids competitive. Or cell phones can be tracked and all sure, that. So sure. there's a kernel of truth there. And I think this I'm not trying to think what the term for this would be, like a the transformation of, of, of wants into needs. Mm-hmm. You know, twenty years ago I never even ten years ago, I, I didn't really think a cell phone was a necessity, right? Right. And then they become a necessity. And if you don't have one, you're an oddball or a weirdo. Definitely. And there is this kind of <laughs> well, this, or, 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 or just handicap. Right? That, that, that hippie girl, she doesn't have the decks. So it's possible to there's the coercion to have it is 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 more peer pressure. It's based on the education system and the in the culture. We, 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 yeah, we do see that small line. That line. But it still becomes almost universally accepted as something you need. So, I mean, we see that, that line of people. That of but then at the end, I mean, at the end, as part of what they've done, they're now making it mandatory. So, yeah, make it mandatory. Yeah, that that they, that, that that's that's the upshot at the end of. Uh, once the, once the once the evil terrorist is apprehended, yes, we're going to make these mandatory. So, yay, corporate capitalism. Yeah, and it, it's not even they don't even have like there's two brands, you know, like how there's at least there's Android and Apple. Right? Um, <laughs> In this case, there's only the Dex, which uh, by the way is a real product from uh, Samsung, right? That's the Samsung device uh, that allows you to put your phone into a laptop. So. Uh, it's called a Dex. Um, not that it's exactly the same as in the show, but if, if you've got if you've got uh, at least a little bit of competition, right? Then um, it's a little more realistic. It's it's uh, whatever's going on here is it's just a little undercooked for mm. for their premise, and then the the explanation is just bunk. I I I I, I can't imagine spending any time trying to make it make sense because they didn't bother. So it doesn't That's what sense. I thought too. Like, did you notice the high school is called Runciter High? Yeah, Glenn Runciter. So it's Ubik. Why did they do that? Well, yeah, and then I thought, oh, maybe reference. there's something there, but I no, can't figure it out. Nothing, I'm like, no, it's nothing there. Yeah, yeah they just decided to be cute. Like, hey, that's you know, annoying. Let's throw a, a, a dick reference in here. Either, I, they call that fan well, service, right? Where they yeah, they say, oh, service. we're gonna make a fan so happy. It's like but you. you can do that and make it meaningful. Like I thought there might be. I mean, maybe I'm just too dumb to get it. Like maybe no, there is something there that they're saying. Me. But 
I, I mean, I can appreciate that sometimes. Like, for example, in the movie Existence, at one point, they're sitting in a hotel in the motel room eating eating fast food, and it's called Perky Pats. So right, it's like, if you know it, it's yeah. like, well, that's cute. But mm-hmm. it means nothing in the actual story. It's not offensive in itself. It's offensive yeah. that, that they think that that's the acceptable way to get people on side. The way I think you well, get people on side is by writing something halfway good, right? And then yeah. really, and then making it explicit. I, I, the special effects are sort of the least important thing. The, the fan service stuff, not really important. What you yeah, really need is an idea that you're fulfilling, right? And and it's almost like they had something going and then they chickened out or something. I, I have no idea why they did it that way. It's just so stupid. It's sad because I feel really burned from the show because even when you were talking before, Jesse, about like the outside world of um, Foster, you're dead. I'm like, yeah, that'd be cool to like, I want to see more of this world and mm-hmm. more like maybe someone should make a show about that. Ah, ah, no, don't never wish that. Exactly, like, now this yeah. show is like burned <laughs> me now. <laughs> That's sad. And especially don't say it on this podcast because then things happen. That's right. Like the Magic happen. Genie podcast. Get yeah. your wishes and then not good. Well, um, I, I was reading your review of this book, Evan, on the site, even though it doesn't have your name on it. Um, and uh, you were saying Foster. it was – Yeah, of Foster, you're dead. When did you write this? Years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 2014. You sound about that. It's like, yeah. What's wrong with Evan? <laughs> have you had – Thoughts, thoughts change about the story since you wrote that? No, my thoughts, I think, are the same. I, um, I, I actually probably think more of on this issue of, of the commons now than ever. Um, I, 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 think it's, I, I think it's in Mark somewhere where there's this uh, – I don't know if it's, a, it's like a chapter or a quote. I came across it once or heard about it where he says like in the final stages of capitalism when capital has nowhere left to expand, when it can't – go to India anymore, the Sahara, mm. it, it starts soon state services. Oh yeah. And uh, well, that's, well, neoliberalism. What we're now, right? that's neoliberalism, right? That's where everything we're going to privatize everything. Now, what's interesting is, uh, there's a, a huge, when we're, as we're recording this and I'm sure in 11 years, somebody will say something, uh, <laughs> make a call back. And I, I was listening to that old episode uh, on The Hanging Stranger, and I was talking about um, Bradley Manning. <laughs> Out of date, Jesse. It's, it's Chelsea now. Okay. So, <laughs> and uh, talking about things that were happening then. Here today, w- w- uh, people are talking about uh, the wall and the government shutdown, right? It could be argued. I don't think it should be argued, but it could be argued um, that in trying to build a wall, this is... Uh, this is Trump trying to protect – I barely can get through this idea. Trump trying to protect <laughs> the entire country from a collective threat, right, as opposed right. to everybody building a wall around their own home, right? And this actually is how the Great Wall of China got built, right? <laughs> there was a collective threat. These key guys keep invading from the north. And this Great Wall of China, is, it's, it's really just a curiosity now. And, of course, it's deep within China, so – they solved that problem long ago. Um, in the world of uh, Philip K. Dick's um, future stories, the uh, Hanging Stranger episode is set in a in a in a. Well, we'll get into that, I guess. But the um, this whole idea that Trump is wrong of building the wall is is especially hated 
by neoliberals. Unless they can find a way to profit by the building of the wall, they don't like the idea of government expenditure, right? Mm-hmm. Only The only kind of government expenditure that's good is ones where they have like profitable industries that benefit from government expenditure. So if you don't have like contractors to build walls, then you're going to be against it because it, it's just money that's not going to go into your coffers. So the people who are actually – like we never see that. This is all very ground level in the story, right? And so mm-hmm. the motivations uh, behind the the friendly guy on the other end of the DEX helpline, help right – are not revealed until the end. And then there's some boss guy telling him what to say. And, and we don't know what his motivation, like it's all ridiculous. This is, this is why I think the original story works as well as it does is because Foster is a kid, like a little kid. And he doesn't understand any of the stuff uh, of what's going on above him. But we do, especially Mm -hmm. now looking back, we see, this is what happens when you have two cultures um, basically in a cold war. He doesn't know anything about a cold war, right? He just lives in that society. So that perspective that we have, I think, is is kind of lacking in the adaptation. And that's why it doesn't work very well. Yeah, because in this, I was thinking that too, that in the story, um, well, in the adaptation, the girl she isn't like affected by all that propaganda and stuff like that was what was interesting about the story is like, there's you're no propaganda, right? Yeah. Like she's kind of outside of it. She's the hippie mom and she comes into it and she does get programmed to act as a terrorist, but she's not, we don't get to see that effect of like living in that society and how frightening and psychologically damaging it would be to, no, it's just bullies um, at school that are, yeah, which is, yeah, it's a different but then, story. You're, you're excluded because you don't have a cool, uh, you know, Walkman, <laughs> yeah, or, or iPhone, right? And, and 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 that is a real thing, right? Kids, kids do get, uh, you know, they want to have the latest device because their friends have it, and <clears throat> and I know that parents are worried about giving giving their kids devices, right? And maybe keeping them off of social media because Instagram is going to drive their daughters into, uh, you know, some sort of uh, vomiting disease. <laughs> <laughs> to try and get thin or you know what apple do like there, there are reasons to be afraid of social media but i don't think the government pressure to have devices is is what's going on there right what's no. what are they saying it just uh let's give up on yeah. this episode and it's how ridiculous. yeah but and with the short story they're like how cool is that story like when you see you imagine this little kid going to a store and crawling into their right. fallout shelter things to feel safe in there in a shop. Like that is just such a cool He's image. So like, yeah. It's so tragic. Yeah. Like I really want to, I wanted to see that story. <laughs> yep. And uh, we don't have that here at all. We have a very different kind of adaptation. Yeah. So I, I take it all back. I, I regret what I said <laughs> about there should be a Philip K. Dick TV show with a new episode every week. I, I you can't take your wishes back, Jesse. That's the thing. Once you make <laughs> yeah. that wish. I made a monkey's paw uh, yep. wish. And... <laughs> well, it doesn't look like there's going to be another season, so I think your wishes, sadly. Yeah. Tra- I mean, yes, I've had issues with some of the episodes, but I think I, I, I don't think they're, in the end, harming Philip K. Dick's brand. They're not helping, but they're, they're helping. We're not harming. So I mean, it's it's it, it's a neutral wash in the mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. I and I, 
and, and there are plenty of I mean there's so much television these days that yeah it, it's it's kind of it kind of just gets lost in the noise I wonder what well, uh, Dick would think of that phrase. There's Dick adaptations coming up. Anyone? Uh, I don't know about any. Wubik movie? I would, I would tell you uh, the answer, though, Marissa, to what Philip K. Dick would say. He would be very delighted. And the reason uh, is... Uh, about well, at the least, phrase... What, what's that? About the phrase uh, Philip K. Dick's brand, or about the... Oh, well, he would be delighted in that he's getting attention. Like... When when he got attention, somebody pointed out um, that when he got published in in the Soviet Weekly without permission, right? He he said, "Here, I'll just read the quote." Um, One day, I saw a newspaper headline reporting that the pre- oh, this is him explaining the premise of this story. One day, I saw a newspaper headline reporting that the president suggested that if Americans had to buy their bomb shelters rather than being provided them by the government, they'd take better care of them. An idea which made me furious. Logically, each of us should own his own submarine, a jet fighter, and so forth. Here I just wanted to show how cruel the authorities can be when it comes to human life. How they can think in terms of dollars, not people. Um, and that's 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 cool. Uh, but he yeah. says also um, in a letter, he says, By the way, the above-mentioned story, that is, uh, Foster, your dad, was picked up by Ogonek, the largest circulation Soviet weekly. 1.5 million, right? So he's very happy about this. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like that totally delighted him. Like, and then he also uh, smacks them. He says, they even drew a number of archaic, foul illustrations for it. So I have more readers in the USSR than in this country. An odd situation. <laughs> I never got a cent for the reprint. I wrote Aganek saying, asking for a copy of the magazine, but they didn't answer the letter. So, I want to see these foul illustrations. Well, I sent you one, and it's not foul you, at all. It's not foul at all, yeah. I wonder if that's what... I don't think that's what he was so talking I think, about. Uh, PKD, he's actually... He's got a weird relationship with uh, reality because he says things... Um, <gasps> no! You think? He, he says things... <laughs> he says things like, um, so, uh, communists are the greatest threat ever, but he's also very interested in them in the way that doesn't suggest that. So yeah. he, he's very happy to report people to the FBI often. <laughs> right. Um, right. This illustration is not foul at all, but because he's he's I mean, the fact that the if it's true that the um, the post office destroyed his copy of of uh, of it when they tried to mail it to him because it was communist propaganda. I don't know if that's true or not. Because I, Philip K. Dick is kind of a, a liar and also delusional in many ways. Right. right? And I think so, I read something that I can't, I can't remember who it was, but I think people didn't totally believe that story. Like he might have just kind of made that up. I didn't even believe that it was even published in the, mag- in the Soviet Union necessarily because it just seemed kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, um, if you were – like that's what I was thinking is what would you be thinking when you're reading this in Soviet Union? And what were the people who published it in the Soviet Union thinking when they published it? Because what does this say about the United States? Is this what we're actually dealing with? And because Philip K. Dick is inspired by that headline, which probably was pretty close to what he says it is, I believe that something like that could be a headline. Because people say all sorts of stupid stuff. Um, Isn't it kind of a really good satire of what actually he's satirizing? Because the stop, drop, and roll and the the solutions to nuclear war are really terrible. <laughs> the ones that they implemented were just mm-hmm. god-awful, right? And 
and we didn't get we didn't get a fallout shelter in every backyard, but people actually did build them, right? Mm-hmm. It was a thing that people did, and they still exist. Not just public shelters, but private shelters. I don't know. There's a, a really terrific uh, movie. I think I mentioned it to you guys before, and maybe Marissa, you will remember. Um, uh, a movie adaptation. It's not an adaptation. It's just a really good movie. I think it's a good movie. It's called The Trigger Effect. It stars Kyle MacLachlan, so of uh, Dune fame. Um, and it's about a neighborhood that the power goes out. And um, it's. I think, Paul, you might have said it was like the monsters are due on Maple Street. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of the paranoia that ramps up when, you know, the power goes out and you live in the United States. So maybe those black neighbors are really threats to you. And they have the, the white neighbors next door have a fallout shelter. Should we go into the fallout shelter? Maybe we should go into the fallout shelter. Is there any room in the fallout shelter? There's not enough room for you in the fallout shelter. So that sort of kind of paranoia. And it ramps itself up. So it's a tiny little bubble version of the kind of paranoia you get during during the Cold War, where people are running around with their heads, like the chickens with their heads cut off, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, what what's actually going on in the outside world doesn't m- seem to matter to the people who are living in the world that everybody's going crazy in. The, the kind of mass hysteria is mass consumerism hysteria, right? Right. Well, it's where we get the fidget spinners from. Like, <laughs> you, you've seen these things. You understand how they work, right? Why are we going in? Why are we doubling down? On, why are we manufacturing these pieces of junk? Because it's profitable right now. Beanie Babies, right? You remember Beanie Babies? <laughs> people, people lost and gained and lost fortunes trying to get in on the Beanie Baby business. Like uh, uh, other, like I was at the time uh, I was running a store, um, and well, it was a family business, uh, so I wasn't quite in charge of buying at that time. But my mom, I think, wisely decided not to get into the Beanie Baby business, even though a lot of our competitions did. And a lot of them went all Beanie Babies. Like, I don't You guys don't even know what a Beanie Baby is? Oh, God, yes, I know. I don't okay. really. Okay. They, it was just something that it was like, a, you know, trolls, like a little doll, except in this case, it's like a it, – it, 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 it's like a Cabbage Patch Kid. It's just some sort of okay. crazy phase, uh, fad that went nuts. And if you didn't get in on it, you were weird. <laughs> it wasn't that you were going to be sent to a concentration camp. You're just not you're not cool because everybody's in on it. It's like, wow, this is weird. Why are these people acting like aliens? Oh, I just looked it up and I can see these like stickers that are like, little proud badges of like i collect beanie babies so you're like proud of collecting them and it was (laughs) it was bizarre like there's probably a documentary about how bizarre it was but it was it was it was getting it was getting into like the company's still in business so it didn't like tank because i guess they made so much profits but there there's something philip k dick is definitely tapping into some aspect of consumerism and I don't think that mm. that's what the adaptation is tapping into at all. I think they're tapping into other things and then not saying what those things are. Because yeah. <laughs> it's not really just about nuclear war. It's also about, as Evan points out in his review, it's it's about consumerism. And uh, I want my, as you point out, I want my dishwasher. I want my uh, hand wa- uh, you know, washing machine for my clothes. Um mm-hmm. You, and I don't need a new washing machine every year. 
But people do, there are a lot of people who buy a new car every year as a status symbol. Mm-hmm. New iPhones, those come out every year. Oh, right? yeah. there, There's one. Yeah. And, and the, what does Apple do? They help you out there, right? They make sure that the phone slows yeah. down so that you go and get it. And they say, you know, it would be much easier to upgrade here. It's only $400 more. Yeah. Only. Yeah. So uh, you've done an episode on Nanny, right? Oh yeah, Nanny is a, a a very it's a, it's it's related to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, I Have think it's a really good about story. Nanny? No, we we should do a show on it because I think it's a really good no, story. The key device at Nanny is that these they're just so it's a robotic Nanny story, which is interesting enough. Obviously, I mean, you can imagine where that goes. But the twist in this that Dick puts in is that at night, the, when the kids are asleep, these nannies basically fight each other, like in the neighborhood. And it's kind of a program planned obsolescence. So you're, you'll wake up and your nanny, which you rely on because the kids love the nanny, they, they don't love you. You know, it's broken. And so it's the kids dual use too, right? that you get this fixed or you go, you take it to the shop and it has to get a new one and it's get upgraded, which has more weapons. So it can fight yeah. the nannies. <laughs> and it's more durable. <laughs> right? yeah. It is. It, I think, I think that that's the ultimate in consumerism satire that he's done. We, we also did a one recently that was adapted, right? With the robot. Uh, uh, what's the robot? Sales pitch? Yeah. Sales pitch. Right. So that one is, I think it's also an adequate uh, parody of consumerism. Um, and, and, and also a little deeper, but Nanny's, I think, dead on. This one feels a bit long. The short story, I mean, feels a bit long for what it is. And it, and it feels really less of comedy than, like, I don't think it's funny at all. I think it's just scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's well, pretty tragic. Uh, let's wrap this up so we can do one on another one. What do you say? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Say we all. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Here we go. Uh, Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hello, I'm Evan. We're going to talk about uh, the adaptation of The Hanging Stranger and The Hanging Stranger for all the people who haven't done a show on it all already. Just as a little bonus here. Um, I think that the story is really good. I did a show on it in 2011. And uh, I think the adaptation on uh, Electric Dreams is pretty much the only good episode of of Electric Dreams. (laughs) Wow. Oh, an episode you like. I know, right? (laughs) It's not uh, highly regarded by everybody else who... Seemed like I looked at a couple of lists of Electric Dreams episodes, uh, you know, the best to the worst ranked, and it was not ranked at the best in any of them, as far as I could see. But I thought it was, I thought it was a very and we, interesting. And we should say episode. for listeners that the actual episode is called "Kill All Others," right? Or KOA is the is the title on the title card, but yeah, "Kill All Others" is what people seem to be referring to because that's what it stands for, right? Um, yeah. Do you uh, did you guys have a similar reaction, and did you like it? I've been I've been less critical of the series than most of you guys. If you guys haven't noticed, so I maybe I'm not the best person to answer this, but yes, I did like it a lot. But then again, 
I like I've liked other ones that you guys haven't liked as much as I have. So, you know, I may not be the best person to answer this question. So mm. throw it to throw it to the two of you, Marissa. I, I, I liked it. I don't I don't know if it's I'd have to think. I don't do these rankings no, I don't very know. well. So I don't know if it's it's I, I love the the thematic adaptation. I think it was one of the stronger ones mm-hmm. in carrying the theme from the story into the adaptation. I love the, the, the kind of the, the factory stuff. I think any, anyone looking at work in Philip K. Dick, I think mm-hmm. that's one of the neglected aspects of Dick's, I guess, you know, when people talk about Philip Dick, they, they often don't talk about work. And I think his greatest novel is all about work. So mm-hmm. it's the galactic pot healer. And, so I like that they at least tried to work in a little bit about work in here. They didn't do it in Autofac. So they, I like they, that you're now saying Galactic Pot Healer is his best novel because you're right. And the dynamic between the three workers mm-hmm. is great. And there's the hilarious. boss there too. And so effective, yeah, and the boss. And actually, I think the – the political stuff works too, and it has echoes in a lot of other Philip Dick's works. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of the celebrity president almost. Yeah, I, who's never named, uh, but she's called the candidate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, which I, I, I think. So I don't know if that implied a perpetual campaign. I, I think that's that's yeah. kind of what I was wondering. Yeah. Is there just a perpetual I thought political was, campaign? I thought it was pretty interesting satire of just like, like it doesn't say what it's a satire of, but I thought it was. It was very timely somehow, and although it's not really a very strict adaptation, I thought it was it was very interesting unto itself. And unlike almost every other episode, it actually sort of cohered really well to itself. Uh, Marissa, what did you think? Well, I actually haven't watched this for. I think I watched it when it first came out, uh-huh. and I can barely remember it. I do remember liking this one. I do remember it had kind of like a cool. Uh, tone to it, but maybe you can remind me of the difference between the TV show and the story. Like sure. Um, it came out as the last episode in uh, one one version of the, it was released in two different ways. I think it came out in the last episode of the, of the um, American edition, and it starts with a uh, fat guy shaving himself in the mirror, cuts himself, and then an ad pops up while he's shaving. Uh, saying, you know, get the desert shave, right? And then he, 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 there's some interference, so he goes into the living room, and his wife's in the living room, uh, cuddling up to another ad, uh, for coffee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and she's saying, what? You know, he's not real. I can't really touch him. But when he turns her, her, uh, uh, they called it routers. When he turns the living room router off, by physically pressing a button, he disappears and she sort of falls over. So <laughs> the the line between whether you can touch these ads or not is interesting. And then <laughs> at work, he's got um, three buddies, uh, two buddies, who the three guys left in the autofac. I think there was even a line about an autofac, um, like in a yeah. poster or something. Maybe it said auto factory or automotive factory. Whatever they're making the factory, their job is basically quality control or something. And yeah, yeah, and then, they, yeah, the, the QA, which, which since I'm in warranty and we're tied to with QA, kind of warmed my heart a little. Right, and and then yeah. on their lunch break, they go out and have a smoke and talk about uh, 
politics a little bit, but more more importantly, they talk about ads um, and how uh, you gotta buy this cheese because the when you bring it home and put it in the fridge, your smart fridge uh, gives you a picture of a really sexy lady who who <laughs> talks about cheese. <laughs> and then later on in the episode, well, you get the right Google ad, right? The right. That's right. It's, it's a Right ad. Uh, and yeah. and then when you get home, you know, your wife's filling the cupboards with bags of uh, coffee and you're filling the <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that it, it, there's it, on that level alone just the uh the ads uh sort of taking over your life and people focusing too much on ads, I think it works pretty well. Um but then there's the actual adaptation of the story which has absolutely nothing to do with ads or or the or the relationship with the wife, really, even, although that gets into it later as well. Um, there's He's watching the polit- political uh, debates with only one candidate, where she gets interviewed, and then she says, casually, kill all others, right? And he thinks this is amazing and astounding, goes online and can't find very many people who agree with him, and no one else at work cares, right? So it's a kind of whole recapitulation of the Hanging Stranger story, which I think everybody should go back and listen to episode 109, where we, we talk about it. Um, uh, and, after, the, after, and, and, and the adaptation is included in Yeah, the, the complete audio is included, free in the beginning. Um, and I think it's I think that it's a really powerful short story. Um, it. I, I didn't remember this because it was so long ago, but it explicitly calls out the KKK, right, and lynching, um, mm-hmm. and how it was kind of a normal thing for Americans to go to a lynching and do a lynching, and you yeah. would even find people, you know, who uh part of the police department there participating, you know, so and then people get their photos taken, and it was like a it was a whole positive thing, sort of just go around lynching people. And how how did we get from where we are today, where hopefully nobody ever thinks that's a good thing, and I I'm pretty confident a lot of people don't think it's a good thing. How do we get from a place like that to the w- way we are now? Well, Philip K. Dick's short story, uh, The Hanging Stranger, is about that. So this adaptation, I think, really understood deep down in its bones somehow. Um, I think her name, who the woman who adapted, is named D. Reese. Like D E E Reese with two E's in the middle, R E E S, I think was her name. Never heard of her yes. before. She seemed to really actually understand <laughs> what this story was about and so, somehow transmuted it into a story that's kind of similar, even though it's not about, um, you know, not set in the 50s and, and sort of has uh, a different explanation as to how and why this is happening. Right. The the thing that's I mean, missing, it, I think, from the sorry, Paul, I'll finish my rant here. The thing that's missing from the adaptation that's in this original story is there's a very real possibility that Ed Lois is completely insane um, and has had a psychotic break. Right. Where I don't think that that's as evident in the adaptation. So what were you going to mm-hmm. say, Paul? Yeah, so so the so the original story, the touchstones for me for that cinematically were things like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm-hmm. because well, I mean, assuming that he is right and that has gone insane, that the people are being replaced. Whereas this more modern thing, I kept thinking of of They Live with the uh, they, they they live and um, Max Headroom. You know, it's a, a reverse lay live though, right? Because 
the the strangers uh the the alien invaders are more numerous they're everybody and the people who are the others are the old-fashioned people who believe in like don't just randomly attack people on the street right don't yes yes l- lynching folks so sane and insane have switched have, have swapped places in the majority that's right uh, do we all, all in this in the adaptation? Do we ultimately find out if his wife is uh, is evil? I don't think I we don't do. Remember. She gets punched in the face by him, um, mm-hmm. at, in, while he's sort of having a psychotic break. Um, but ultimately, he we see what happens to him. So, I think we walk away. Does this ring any bells, Marissa? Yeah, I can remember a little bit of it. Yeah, it's coming back. Yeah. Do you remember liking the original before having read the short? Or the adaptation, I should say, before reading the, reading the short? I think I did read the um, the short story first. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I really like the short story. I think it's super powerful. It's a horror story more than... It's as, as big, a, if not bigger, a horror story than even um, the father thing, I think. Which yeah. is made kind of worse because it's a kid, but... Um, I think one thing the story and the adaptation both get right is how whether there's an invasion or people being replaced or whatever, it doesn't really matter because everything kind of still goes on Mm -hmm. with life just sort of goes on. And Philbert and the adaptation of his name's Ed in the story, right? Mm -hmm. Ed Lois. It's it's, um, you know, it just the life goes on. There's this quote that uh, in the story. Where and I love that they have kind of the the, the this kind of the human wa- the people watching while during the commute mm-hmm. you know, to see how weird everyone is and there's mm-hmm. the self reflection like maybe I'm weird too mm-hmm. you know stuck here like you know everyone like I, I used to do these long commutes in Taipei and I always people watched and there are all these uh, people in suits at 5 a.m. and things <laughs> but here's the quote from the story uh, dull tired faces people going home from work ordinary quite ordinary faces none of them paid any attention to him all sat quietly sunk down in their seats jiggling with the motions of the bus the man sitting next to him unfolded a newspaper he began to read the sports section his lips moving an ordinary man blue suit tie a businessman or a salesman on his way to his wife and family going home with their minds dead, controlled, filmed over with the mask of an alien being that had appeared and taken possession of them, their towns, and their lives. End quote. So that's the result of this invasion is just people still go to work. Mm-hmm. You know, still do the commute, still read the newspaper. So, yeah, which, which gives kind us... kind of fascinating to me. I, I don't quite know how to interpret it. It's just... It's, it's, kind of this banal life and we're just stuck with it. I, guess. I, I At the time, I, I remember thinking it was an invasion like a communists are everywhere and they're going to take over and yeah. they're 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 going to replace you right it's kind of like the way invasion of the body snatchers does right um it's a metaphor for some sort of takeover and they look just like us that's what the the right the reds they're everywhere they look just like us uh they act just like us there's no way to tell them apart from us you have to root them out right it's like ooh. Um, so yeah, you would look just like a regular guy on the bus, but of course they have buses in Soviet Russia too, right? <laughs> so people, uh, the, the fact that the people, I was saying it was all about empathy. And the, the first time I talked about this on a, on a podcast is that, um, nobody got upset when they saw the hanging stranger, except for Ed, right? 
and that's how he feels when he sees the hanging stranger of the adaptation is is the words on the screen kill all others you know the fact that there's only one candidate that's kind of uncool right and then they they kind of hint at that as maybe yeah maybe that's a bit strange and so they address it right um but when she says and of course kill all others and then, then the, uh, he freaks out and he's running around the house saying, come look at this, right? And he, she just said, kill all others. And then and the wife's like, what? Huh? And then the people at work, nobody's talking about it. And he's, he points it out to them and they're like, hmm. We have that same thing in the, the original story where he, he pulls up in front of his own store and the neighboring store people are you know walking by and he calls his employee out to look at the at the sign and the employee's like i'm gonna lose this sale if i don't stick with it is this really important it's like there's a man hanging there right (laughs) and and it's like yeah so it's some promotion or something remember last year when they put a broken car to stop drunk driving it's like it's not a big deal (laughs) like that's that freaks the shit out of me that kind of feeling (laughs) when i think you're right about empathy here it's well you just think about like, you know, capital punishment, you know, something yeah. I've, you know, that you, you drag this, you drag this person from the cell one day, you know, because the judge said, or the, or the, whatever the governor didn't call or whatever. So you drag this guy in chains to an electric chair or a gallows, or you just take him out and shoot him in the street or cut off his their head like in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so horrific if you sit down and actually think through this process. And people yeah. do it for their jobs. Yeah, yeah. You know, most people, you know, it's just, there must be a good reason, right? It's been a yeah. bad guy. Yeah, I totally. That's a quote from the story, I think. Right? When you, so, like, there must be a good reason someone's yeah. hanging up. I really feel that, like, especially um, when you live in different countries. Like, when I now that I moved to America, I find, like, it's a much more violent culture. You know, like, just that whole thing you're saying, even, like, with the putting people in prison and, and being all for capital punishment and just this kind of like violent, aggressive attitude towards people. And it's so normalized here. And then you start to just like, like it was shocking at first, you know, but then you just start to be like, Oh, that's just how we are. <laughs> yep. Like it becomes sort of normal and your empathy kind of goes down. It's really weird. And there's no, there's no encouragement to, uh, to question. Right. So, yeah, because if you do, you're you're the widow. Yeah, and I, I think that 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 you know we just finished talking about um, Foster Your Dead, and I think it's a good story. But what Philip K. Dick pulls off in in this uh, Hanging Stranger is he makes a, a almost perfect story. It's so symmetrical. It starts with a Hanging Stranger, it ends with a Hanging Stranger, and the cycle begins again. Right? Um, it's it's are we going to learn from this? And then it makes you say, like, yeah, well, you know, those those concentration camps, they weren't run just by Nazis. They were run by everybody, right? Everybody, yeah. People worked there. And there are relatives in my family. The only reason they exist is because their family members worked in the camps. As in, it was either you kill Jews with the uh, other Jews or you die. And it's like, that's fucking crazy. But... Well, if you don't conform, uh, there's a pile of people who didn't conform. What are you going to do? And so there's this a massive for, sort of 
idea that and it really is interesting and and there's definitely something you could do with black mirror or whatever to do with it which is you know the more something is liked on on um facebook or twitter right the more likely people are to like it right and i have the exact opposite instinct i see something that's yeah. not popular <laughs> and i uh, that's not popular and i say this should be more popular <laughs> and then i see something that's really popular and i can see why it's popular and then i say oh my god i'm not going to click on this <laughs> and the reason i'm not is because i don't want to be one of them right one of those mindless drones who i see all around me who i know are sometimes like, i even I question like that yeah sometimes i question um, if I almost take that too far, like, am I not liking something because yes. it's popular? But absolutely, usually I try to like pay attention to when I'm doing that and when I'm not. Like, <laughs> it's hard to tell if you actually like something sometimes. That that it's that's a very fact. So there's a part of Reddit where I, I I don't use Reddit a lot, but I use it for like a some weird things that I'm interested in. You know, like my old phone or whatever, um, or some. The car parts or whatever it is I'm interested in. But there's a part of Reddit that's the most popular part that is just sort of new and interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And those are the, when you look at what's on there, I don't click on it often, but I've done it just because I'm curious as to what, what's going on. What you see is kind of the same thing as what you see is popular on Twitter. It's just sort of things that are commonly liked. Like you have a picture of a cute animal doing something cute, right? Everybody likes that. What's nothing, nothing not to like about that? But the inverse of that is when you see, like, imagine that you're just a hundred years ago, right? <laughs> imagine Reddit a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago, and you're going to see things on there that are really fucked up and mm-hmm. that everybody likes. <laughs> and then you're living in that society. And that's how I think we. Uh, that's why I think it really speaks. This this hanging stranger story really speaks. Um, even past its 1950s setting, um, it could be 1920s setting or 1918, you know, it could be any really setting where you've got a social uh, consensus and, um, and then somebody who just doesn't quite agree with what everybody else thinks is completely normal. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what I guess. I guess this is also what you get with the flyover states, right? The the people in the flyover states don't call them flyover states. The people who live there think that people on the west and east coast are um, delusional, and they don't understand. So we get these bubbles of of reality. But I love I love the way he sets up that story where it, he he has this massive explanation as to why um, the aliens. Or whatever these dimensional beings are coming in, and they're in the Bible, and blah blah blah. And, um, but ultimately, those explanations are not the important ones, right? It's just the 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 sort of lurking menace behind motivation, behind people's claims of being publicly decent. Mm. Mm. Because who are the others, right? That's that's the question. It, it, it was like. Is this about Trump? That's why I was thinking while I was watching it. Are they making a comment on Trump? But actually, that phrase, um, uh, the name of the country um, is uh, was Mex Mexus Can, right? Because it's Mexico, Canada, okay. and the United States all brought together into one big country. <laughs> and there's one big candidate, right? And her 
her um, slogan was, uh, yes, we can, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> which was very similar to Obama's <laughs> slogan, right? Which is, wasn't that exactly the same, actually? I can't remember. He had one, uh, yes, we can, right? Whatever can was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, we yeah, can. Do whatever it is you right? think is good. <laughs> Sorry. I, that. Th- that was weird that I kind of forgot that term. I'm like, oh, like Philip K. Dick's what reality is blurring into this reality. Like, yeah, it's what's, right, right? What's true? <laughs> Which was the slogan? What were you saying? Uh, um, well, yeah, I just noticed that. I, I think because you pointed it out. Mex yeah. us can. Yes, us can. It's, yeah. I think, I think <laughs> they, they cheer. They cheer the first time. I was like, that doesn't seem the way you would say it. I guess they didn't want to play with Obama either, but <laughs> it fits with the name of the country. Um, this, by the way, is, is kind of preposterous. Maybe a U.S.-Canada kind of thing. Um, but there, there's this book I read years ago um, called Race and Empire or something. It was about the post-Civil War era mm-hmm. and into the early period of U.S. empire abroad. And it was look, actually looking at the congressional record about these debates about whether we should take Puerto Rico or Philippines or even there was a time when President Grant had a chance to buy the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And all the arguments in Congress were like, we don't want black people, dark people in our country. Right. We don't want more. So actually it was the racists were anti-empire. Mm-hmm were the strongest anti-imperial voices. Um, but the idea of the U.S. merging with Mexico seems pretty preposterous given the current political climate. Yeah, even even merging with uh, occupied territories that they have, right? Like, uh, yeah. uh, what was the um, Puerto Rico, right? Puerto Rico is not going to yeah, become don't... a state because that would mean, um, uh-oh, <laughs> right? And uh, American Samoa and... And yeah, mm-hmm. you, you take over the Philippines, and that's part of your empire. And but you don't really want to allow Filipinos to move to your country and sort of be, be voting mm-hmm. with equal rights, or even like be incorporated as a state. Um, it, it it's a it's a weird sort of racist um, holder back versus the Soviet version, where all racism yeah. is bad. We can we can conglomerate everybody together. Um, doesn't matter what uh, oblast you're from, <laughs> we're, we're all in this one big happy uh, Soviet family. Um, and that's the threat, right, is they have a technical advantage. They don't care how they race mix. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't take um, the Mexico-U.S.-Canadian merger as necessary. I thought it was sort of cartoony. Um, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't know how their world exists exactly. I thought it was all sort of cartoony, but I thought that it was also very creepily done. And also it, it seemed just thought through somehow. The fact that we never actually see that candidate involved in the, like, she doesn't actually know about our main character, right? When, when he's finally hanging at the end of the story, uh, end of the adaptation, she has to be told his name. It wasn't about him particularly. It was about all of the others. And more importantly, all of the people who don't conform to the idea that only one candidate's fine. And and that's just one step away from having two two uh, parties, really, that are one party. Two right-wing parties called the Democrats and the Republic, Republicans or whatever they're called. <laughs> right? The, the, you, they're really one party. The party she's called the, the candidate. It's not the president that's or right. the leader. 
That's so right. am I right in thinking that this is just a perpetual campaign? I think I think that that was also what was uh, right. The 2020 election is now being fought and people are declaring yeah. and what, we just had the midterms. Right. It's uh, this is something they do talk about in the media. Right. The, how the per- campaigns are perpetual now. Yeah. So that, that might be the ideal of. Uh, maybe not a deal, but it's and in fact, I think one of the characters makes the point like we're having constant debate. So mm-hmm. this is the most most perfect democracy. Right? <laughs> well, and, and they legitimately allow. Right. They legitimately allow questions. So um, when he makes his his call and he wants to say he's Lucas um, and he's got this hoodie on and sunglasses and hides his picture of his wife, but they know who he is. Right. Um, so, yeah, you're allowed to ask any question you want. But if you ask the kind of wrong question, you have the wrong thing, you must be one of those others. And, it, it, and we know what we do with them, we kill them. It's very interesting and, and very powerful in a way that uh, I think Philip K. Dick was pointing at, pointing to. And they just did their own. Uh, this uh, writer did her own thing with it. And I think she did a really good job. It's uh, it's weird to find myself really liking an episode of this show because I, it wasn't like the most amazing TV I've ever seen. It's just like wow, this is good. <laughs> it held together. It wasn't just a a nice scene and then another nice scene and another nice scene. It was uh it was well done and it all held it held together like a gel, right? Like that mm. that the really there was something there. It used the symmetry of the story and then it changed the motivation. It wasn't you know, interdimensional aliens. And there was less about, you know, your wife's turning into one of them is that she always was one of them. Right. Um, you didn't know. Right. And that's, that's really true. I see people on Twitter. I see what they like, you know, it shows you on Twitter what they like. And I'm like, I think I might need to unfollow this person because they liked something that like that. That's just like, <laughs> well, well, I had respect here. And now the, I don't know what to do about this. <laughs> what do I do? Because that's stupid. You shouldn't like that. You shouldn't hate that. <laughs> it's so stupid. And, and we and we do get uh, manipulated, right? The um, the uh, they call them sock puppets, right? The sock puppet accounts that are run by by individual human beings, but also by by uh, strategic institutions, including the military. They will go in and like things so as to make them more popular, which makes them more likely to be liked. Yeah, so which it, makes them more likable. It's so weird. It, and and it, it seems to be like that's the thing is Philip K. Dick is really tapping into something that's very real. If something is acceptable to a large enough percentage of the population, a large percentage of the population will say it's fine. <laughs> and, 100%. And also the other way as well, if something's not acceptable – that's right. It's and just inconceivable. Like infectious. Right? That's right. Yeah. And so if you get enough, uh, this is why, you know, the fake news lands so much is because when you get enough people not talking about certain issues and only talking about other issues, people will, a lot of people will still only talk about those issues that are only being shown and never talk about the ones that aren't. Right. Mm-hmm. So you never get, you never get to talk about Yemen until something like, Khashoggi happens, right? And then they consider, oh yeah, maybe we'll cancel Yemen, <laughs> the Yemen war and the Yemen activity for a while, and then sort of that fades out of the news and back to things as usual. 
the the inattention. I, I think that that that's why this is what they call a litmus test, right? Litmus test, political litmus mm-hmm. test. If you see the man hanging on the street, what do you do? If you just walk by, and say, "Huh, new display." <laughs> I don't want to hang out in that city. I want to run for the hills, right? And then when you go home and you find your wife is like, "You're going crazy," and your son wants to kill you because he's you, you don't you want to take him out of school. Oh wow, yeah. it's so good. It's such a good yeah, story. It's kind of in our culture now as well. That thing of the sort of the public shaming mm-hmm. stuff that goes on, where the culture will just go after someone, like, and it's brutal, and it's before any like like orderly justice has been has gone through any kind of process. Mm-hmm. But if you don't agree with the culture, that even if the person is a shithead, you know, like even if you don't agree with the public um, hanging, like it, you know, in quotes there. Yeah, you're there's something wrong with you. Like you have to like join the mob and bay for someone's blood, otherwise you're not right. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you'll so re- rehabilitate people who are um if if they're on your team, it doesn't matter that they were wrong before and morally wrong before because they're on your side now. There's there's a, a kind of gang mentality that Yeah. That it doesn't show up in the story, I don't think, but it, it it's the background behind which um, this seems to like when in the, in the adaptation he sees some lady getting attacked um, in the park by just a mm-hmm. group of strangers, and he runs and said, "What did she do? Um, she's one of the others, right?" And said, "What? Well, maybe you're another." It's like uh, so this goes beyond racism. Right, which is I I think the genius part of that original short story is that it it doesn't say this is black lynching, which it is, right? That's what it, he's tackling. He's mm-hmm. also he's he's saying that that phenomenon is not only applicable to blacks; it can be applicable to all sorts of different groups. Yeah, it's um, just our psychology. Others, like, right? Yeah, whoever they are, and and so when Donald Trump goes on TV and says uh, we have a serious problem at the border, we're under attack like never before, and the numbers say the exact opposite, um, a lot of people will still think that that's a big deal mm-hmm. um, because it's mm-hmm. it is it's a way to sell bomb shelters, right? Yeah, <laughs> the way to sell guns is to make the the threat of danger higher. Buy or die. Buy or die. Now, you don't want to be a sheep like everybody else and not buy a gun, do you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then that's actually that is the mentality people take. He says, I, I have to have a gun because everybody else has one. And once you're in that system, you're really you're you're fucked. Yeah. You, Your brain you is vigilant. just hijacked. There's there's a forthcoming novella from Robert Jackson Bennett called Vigilance. Mm-hmm. The tagline is stay armed, stay cautious, stay vigilant. It's about a near future America where everyone's watching and waiting for terrorist attacks. Everyone's armed and a TV show is cynically staging these attacks on Americans for, for ratings. And, hmm. it, and, and it, it, it's a, it's a very biting send up of this paranoia culture. It's coming out soon as of the time of this recording, it'll be out. In a, in a few weeks and yeah it's it's really it's a really really dark turn look at what where america's going and what america is now yikes it's it's really well written but i don't yeah, know how much darker i can get paul <laughs> uh, 
if you read Vigilance, yeah, you'll it's it's, it's like it's it's like the running it's like a modern Running Man, which I kept thinking of the, the Running Man novel as as I was reading this, wow. even more so than the movie. But yes, like even even pushed even further. So That's yeah, high praise. Hmm. The problem is Americans might be are, are they active enough? I mean, the mob thing, you know, you just go along with the mob, you just like things. Maybe you can buy your decks or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's as far as a lot will go. I mean, to actually buy guns and train yourself to use guns and actually being vigilant, that's like a full-time job. Well, you just get the sticker. <laughs> See, you don't need to do that. You just get the sticker and you put it on the back of your car yes. and say, you know, um, it's like some people have a sign that on their door that says, you know, beware of dog or it has um, protected by, uh, you know, whatever by alarm, but they don't actually install the alarm or use the alarm or buy the dog. It's just a way to show or right. The, it's the blinking light in your car that's attached to nothing. Up here, there, like there was drone. one that was it didn't do really well, but um, there was a, a sticker you could get for the back of your car that basically said, I'm on the side of the police. Um, but that's not what it said. It was it was like um, it was designed, I think, to make it so that it, you you could get pulled over if you're driving late at night. So your car wasn't stolen and you were not drunk driving. Right. So if the cops saw the sticker and your car was on the road late at night, um, then you are saying I'm OK to be searched or something like that. And it didn't really do amazingly well. But that kind of idea where, you know, I'm I'm more patriot or I'm I'm pro P instead of anti P going back to our other story. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And what I liked about that foster your dead is there is no thing such thing really as pro P everybody's P. Right. Mm-hmm. There's only anti P and that that fits with the kill all others sort of idea that sort of can they, the two stories and the two worlds actually blend together very well. I think in my mind, even though the adaptation of um, of uh, foster your dead is a piece of junk at the end because it doesn't know where it's going or what it's doing. I think that the 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 students and that school could live in the world of um of uh, Noyce in the Filbert Noyce in the uh, other adaptation. And there was no uh, talking pigs too, which was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Random talking pigs for no reason. Okay. I, are we done this series yet? Uh, do we do every episode? Can I feel like stop? we have. Can we stop now? please? Yeah, can they stop? Can everything <laughs> stop? <laughs> That's, that sounds like a plea, Jesse. Let's see. So we've done the Hoodmaker. <laughs> Impossible Planet, The Commuter, Fuzzy Diamond, Real Life, Human Is, The Father Thing, Artifact, Safe and Sound, and Kill All. Yes, we're done with the we're done with this series. Electric Dream series is over. Good. Um. I, by the way, I don't know if we ever mentioned it. Um. Crazy Diamond. The reason it's called that is it's named after a song that's unrelated to Philip K. Dick. Um, I'm not a music yeah, guy, it, but there's a famous song that says something like "Shine on you, Crazy Diamond." That's yeah, the one, yeah. Like okay, so that's just more evidence that this series was ill-conceived, um, because I, I, I get why well, "Kill All Others" is a is a good title or "KOA" is a good title. Uh, "Safe and Sound" sounds like it's sort of related to the the story originally but there's so, there was so much bunk and and things that were just off about this that really didn't have 
as much. That's why I think the little details, like you were saying, Evan, of just having this factory setting and having the question as to why are we here? Why are we working? Is the union, did the union do well by having these three guys working there? Um, who, like, is all this, uh, um, amalgamation of the three nations designed to secure the new NAFTA? Like, what does all that mean? I don't know, but it's, it's nice and it works in the background. Um, and those are all Philip K. Dick sort of themes, right? And I think that the, the author, our, um, the scriptwriter for this, she, she actually did sort of get it, where I think a lot of people really didn't get it at all. They just had no clue as to what Philip K. Dick was really about. And they'd seen mm. maybe, they saw Blade Runner and thought, oh, let's do some of that. Yeah, some of the other episodes they tried to mine from, like, Philip Dick's different ideas. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, the Hoodmaker tries to use, like, the anti-telepath stuff, which is in Ubik, and it's in... Oh, well, it's, in the, the, it's in the original story as well, though, right? But they, they do expand upon it. Was it in the original story? Yeah. Maybe I forgot. I'm but pretty sure. There's, there's um, a lot of them connect different Philip Dick ideas, but mm-hmm. do it in an awkward way. And I think that was I – mean, I, I didn't. I don't mind them doing that. I think that's – the more of Philip Dick's ideas that are out there, I think, in these adaptations are, you know, the better. Because mm-hmm. the, the films don't really do that very well at all. No. So it, some of those ideas got out there, but they're not put together well, I think. Um, uh, before we wrap this up, I want to say, um, Evan, your show, your five episodes on uh, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep were excellent. I mean, I like, oh, I really like listening to your show. I don't listen to all the ones I haven't read yet. <laughs> so there's a lot <laughs> I haven't read. But um, I read that, and you did a really good job with that. I think um, cool. everybody should go listen to that. If you, if I think I actually just, yeah, I just downloaded all those, but I haven't listened to them yet. Do Android stream yeah. electric sheep? It it really makes a difference. If you're talking about a really good story, um, you can make a really good podcast out of it. It's very hard to make a good podcast out of a shit story. So I, I apologize to everybody who has had to sit through sort of mediocre stories and complaints about. Um, about uh, very bad adaptations of Philip K. <laughs> um, Hanging Stranger, well worth a listen and a read. Um, Foster Your Dad is interesting, and I think it's probably worth a read once in your life. Um, but Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, I think if you died without having um, read that and really grokked it, um, your life is just not as interesting and as delightful as it could have been because it's a depressing book about a, uh, amazing ideas. And yeah. what you were talking about with the kipple, it made me want to read the whole thing again, right? The human kipple and the regular kipple, those chicken head guys and all those poor androids and the, the little fisherman in the night who gets a shout out <laughs> in there. Great stuff. Yeah. I enjoyed doing that one. Yeah. I'm, good stuff. I'm, I'm kind of getting to the end. I can see the end of the, the tunnel on this. I, oh, no. I have eight, yeah. eight more books. Okay, well, I want, I want, I'm really excited to hear the Galactic, Galactic Pot right Healer now. show. Are you, are you recording Galactic Pot Healer sh- shortly? That's done. Those are all in the can. Oh, really? Oh. Galactic Pot Healer, Maze of Death, and I'm recording Frolics 8 now. Friends and then that's, then it's just the 70s and 80s stuff. So there's the four Ballas novels, if you include Radio Free Albumet, mm. uh, Successions of a Crap Artist, 
And then there's just like Scanner Darkly and... There's a couple of short stories, right? The short stories are all recorded already. Okay. So it's it's getting near the end. Then the question is, do I do the posthumous published things? Mm. <laughs> I can't Which I haven't read yet. Right, I'll, so I'll, I'll let you read them and tell me, okay? I'll, I'll look to the future. I'll, I'll, I'll keep that... Well, the website will still be going. I'll just be doing Thomas Jefferson or something. Yeah, you're going to do H.P. Lovecraft, too, I hear. Yeah, I'll do Lovecraft eventually. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I think that'll be fun. Good. I guess we're done, I gotta huh? get back. Yeah. Excellent. We well, thanks for the advertisement for the... Oh, that's not an advertisement. That's just me really appreciating what you did.